Hi, I'm Mike Overby from Amicus Lectio. This episode is not about religion. It's the first part of an audiobook I'm producing of Lewis M. Kohlmeyer Jr.'s 1972 book about the contentious politics behind nominations to the Supreme Court, which still seems somehow zeitgeisty as of 2020. Uh, The book as a whole is critical of Nixon's appointments, but this first part has an overview of the court's history on the subject, and in particular targets the peculiarities of President Johnson's uh, cronyism in his appointments. Uh, Additionally, I have to say, while this book as a whole could be called uh, anti-racist for the time, the poor treatment of African Americans by the American government is a major theme throughout. Uh, Some descriptions of systemic racism born around apologia, and I have not changed the language Mr. Kohlmeyer used to describe African Americans, which is not woke. So please consider this a language warning, and on a lighter note, I mispronounced Abe Fortas's name as Fortas, and I pronounced Nicholas Katzenbach as Katzenbach, and I'm not going to fix him. So, all of that said, if you would rather hear something about God and the Constitution, there's an episode of my podcast you can check out. I produce Amicus Lectio, a podcast where I read you open access and public domain legal scholarship, and Brian was gracious enough, as always, to let me produce this as a special for both of our shows. So, thanks to him, and here's the shill. If you'd like to suggest papers for me to read on Amicus Lectio, including your own, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Amicus Lectio, or at Lethargilistic. On with the show. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. God save this Honorable Court, the Supreme Court Crisis, by Lewis M. Kohlmeyer, Jr., Prologue. Nations, like the men whose communities they comprise, do not always live by the dictates of conscience. But nations that will endure cannot do so without a conscience, and, as Earl Warren told Richard Nixon, quote, because you might not have looked into the matter, end quote, the conscience of the United States is in its constitution, and the keeper of its conscience is the Supreme Court of the United States. Great presidents do not need a written constitution. Abraham Lincoln told a doubting Secretary of the Treasury not to, quote, bother with the Constitution. I have that sacred instrument here at the White House, and I am guarding it with great care, end quote. Lesser presidents cannot do without a written Constitution. The Constitution applies equally to the three separate and coordinate branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. But there is no instant wisdom in the broad mandates of the Constitution that defines for each succeeding generation with its crises domestic and foreign, the safe and proper balance between government authority and individual freedom. Presidents and congresses and courts, therefore, have clashed before in history over the meanings of the Constitution, and now they clash with a new ferocity. Yet it is the Supreme Court alone that holds the ultimate power to declare acts of presidents or congresses null and void under our Constitution, and thus to check excessive authority, which is repression. It is the court that bears the final responsibility for enforcing the Bill of Rights and ensuring individual freedom and human dignity. If the essential humanism of the Constitution is not to be found in the consciences of the members of the Supreme Court, and in the wisdom of a court that is independent of the political majoritarianism of the other two branches, then the nation can seek solutions for its crises only in constitutional amendment, or, as it has once before in its history, in consummate national violence. This, then, is the danger of the new clash over the Constitution, and this is the crisis of the Supreme Court. 
End of prologue. The long era of liberal domination of the Supreme Court may have come to an end today to the names of conservative justices Berger, Blackman, Powell, and occasionally conservative Justice White. That of conservative William Rehnquist was added today when he was confirmed by the Senate after five days of debate. We have a report from ABC Capitol Hill correspondent Bob Clark. Liberals, led by Indiana's Birch Bayh, had tried vainly to convince the Senate Rehnquist was unfit to serve in the court because of his record on civil rights and individual liberties. But when Bayh moved to put off a confirmation vote until January, he was resoundingly defeated. Majority Leader Mansfield called for final action today. Bayh agreed, and Rehnquist was approved 68 to 26. The no votes came from 23 Democrats, only three Republicans. Liberals and conservatives had different views about what it all means. Senator, what happens to the Supreme Court when you add Rehnquist to the other Nixon appointees? Does it take a sharp turn to the right? I think so. I think so. I think uh, there's no question if Mr. Rehnquist's earlier stated views are inculcated into Supreme Court decisions, the Supreme Court is going to take a sharp turn to the right. I think you're going to see a court now that will reach decisions that will be favorable but they'll be reached on the Constitution and not on a book of sociology. Whether the Supreme Court will now take the sharp turn to the right that liberals fear is a question for the future. But four of the nine justices will now be Nixon appointees, conservatives close to the strict constructionist image admired by the president. Together they may extend Mr. Nixon's influence on America's image and American history far beyond his own years in office. Bob Clark, ABC News, Capitol Hill. Chapter 1. The Beginnings of a Battle On Wednesday, July 14, 1965, the late afternoon sun was warm and inviting in London, not barbarously hot as it was in Washington. Adlai E. Stevenson, the United States Representative to the United Nations, was in London on a private visit, but he was staying at the American Embassy residence with Ambassador and Mrs. David K. E. Bruce. It was difficult to make a really private visit to London, as Stevenson would so much have liked. He had taped an interview for the British Broadcasting Corporation earlier in the day and had taken great care to say in just the right way that he stood with the president in support of the United States' position in Vietnam. The night before, there had been a party at the embassy, quite pleasant, but Vietnam again had come up in the conversation. His role at the UN had become substantially more difficult in the past month since President Lyndon Johnson publicly had committed American servicemen in Vietnam to combat. It was warm and bright outside the embassy, and the day was nearly over. Stevenson and Marietta Tree went for a walk. Mrs. Tree was an old friend and a fellow member of the U.S. delegation to the U.N. They started walking along Grosvenor Street and were no more than 50 yards from the embassy when Stevenson suddenly fell to the pavement. It was ten minutes past five o'clock and the streets were busy, but a doctor appeared within a minute or two. He could not revive Stevenson. An ambulance came to take Stevenson to St. George's Hospital near Hyde Park, where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Adlai Stevenson's death, of an apparent heart attack at the age of 65, was a surprise. He had looked fine at the party the night before. He had been U.S. representative to the U.N. for four years, the Democratic candidate for president in 1952 and again in 1956. He had lost to Dwight Eisenhower both times. John Kennedy had beaten him for the Democratic nomination at the convention in 64, and after Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon in the election, the president appointed him to the UN, where he had stayed after Lyndon Johnson succeeded Kennedy. Stevenson, a quietly eloquent orator who was too much of an intellectual to win in the game he had played, 
really wanted to be Kennedy's Secretary of State, even more than to be President, he had told a friend. But it was suggested by the White House that he go to the United Nations instead of the State Department, and, agreeably as ever, he went. A lawyer, he most likely would have made a superb Supreme Court justice, but Kennedy had not offered that either. In Washington, President Johnson announced his regret over Stevenson's death and said he was dispatching, quote, a delegation of distinguished Americans to London to bring back its body to America, end quote. The delegation, Johnson said, would be headed by Vice President Hubert Humphrey. The president had made him an experienced hand at funeral going around the globe, as if there was nothing better for an eager vice president to do. Stevenson was brought home to Illinois for burial, as Lincoln's body had been carried home. The death of Adlai Stevenson marked the beginning of a chain of events that led to a historic battle over the future of the Supreme Court, which two presidents, Johnson and Nixon, fought out with the United States Senate. At the time, there was no apparent connection between Stevenson's death and the court, in the public's mind anyway. For most men, his death was an event to be mourned, or not, and forgotten. For the president, it meant naming a new representative to the United Nations. For Lyndon Johnson, as he privately pondered his course, it meant something more than simply the making of another appointment. American representation at the United Nations was of importance to the Johnson administration in the summer of 1965. The war in Southeast Asia was going badly, and the president had ordered regular bombings of the communist facilities in North Vietnam, and then sent our military advisors into combat in South Vietnam. A large body of opinion in Europe, as well as at home, was against the president, and it was the UN representative's task to help placate the Europeans and watch the Russians in Southeast Asia, and also in the unsettled Middle East. On the other hand, the UN post was not of overriding importance. Johnson was going to do what he had decided to do in Vietnam, despite European opinion. And, further, Stevenson at the UN had not truly been one of Johnson's men. He was Kennedy's man. Johnson could have named the UN position any one of a number of men. If he wanted an experienced diplomat, the State Department woods were full of them. There were those at Harvard who would grab at the opportunity and Johnson's standing with Eastern intellectuals was such that he could always use another Ivy League prop. Or he could name one of his own men, meaning somebody he personally knew well and implicitly trusted, if that consideration outweighed diplomatic experience. But presidents do not name just anyone to anything. If the job is good enough to require presidential nomination and Senate confirmation, or even if it isn't, there always are plenty of job seekers among the party faithful. The higher the position, the heavier is their pressure on the White House. Then, too, one always must consider the claims of the White House of people who, on request, have done favors for the president, such as senators who voted for legislation he wanted, and there were those from whom the president would want favors in the future. Many things to be considered, many men who would think the UN job a plum. It did not take Lyndon Johnson long to make up his mind and all those normal precedents that usually apply in the filling of high positions were of no use at all to the president. He told no one, not even those whose lives would be most directly affected, until he had all his moves lined up and was ready. Only then did he tell the principals, not one, but two, and neither like the role Johnson had decided for him. But Lyndon Johnson vastly enjoyed and skillfully worked the powers of the presidency to manipulate men. Presidents may not be kings, but the badges of authority, the prestige of office, the White House itself, state visits of kings and potentates, Air Force One, all these things, vest in the presidency a voice of great persuasiveness that none but the strongest men will deny. Lyndon Johnson, probably more than most presidents, was most persuasive when he determined to be. So the two men agreed, 
each with great and sincere reluctance for his own good reasons, and Johnson, with great satisfaction, made the announcements to assembled reporters and dignitaries. First, on July 20th, 1965, he stepped out of the Oval Office and into the White House Rose Garden to announce that he was nominating Arthur J. Goldberg, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, to succeed Stevenson as representative to the United Nations. Quote, One week ago today, Johnson said solemnly, we and the world lost Adlai Stevenson, end quote. He stressed the great honor and responsibility of the U.N. position, saying Goldberg, quote, will speak not only for the administration, but he will speak for the entire nation, end quote. Goldberg, having been confirmed quickly by the Senate, returned to the White House Rose Garden on July 26th, where he was sworn in as U.N. representative. Justice Hugo Black administered the oath as the president looked on, clearly pleased that Goldberg was leaving the court and going to the United Nations. Two days later, at a White House press conference, President Johnson made his other announcement, quote, I am happy today, here in the East Room, he said with obvious delight, to announce that the distinguished American, who was my first choice for the position now vacant on the Supreme Court, has agreed to accept this call to this vital duty. I will very shortly, this afternoon, send to the Senate my nomination of the Honorable Abe Fortas to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, end quote. Abe Fortas, who then was not the quote-unquote honorable anything, said nothing. The person and the presidency of Lyndon Johnson were in some ways much like those of an earlier president, Andrew Jackson, who also had determined to place a man of his choice on the Supreme Court. Both were populists, and both Democrats who were never able to communicate with Eastern establishment intellectuals. Each came from poor, rural beginnings, Jackson from Tennessee and Johnson from Texas, and eventually each returned to the considerable real estate he had accumulated, Jackson to the Hermitage near Nashville, and Johnson to the LBJ Ranch near Austin. As a young man, each was endowed with more than ordinary ambition, which took him to successively higher political office, Jackson detouring for a time to become a military hero in the War of 1812. And along the way, each acquired substantial private wealth and a lasting respect for property rights. A major difference was that Jackson and his Supreme Court nominee, Chief Justice Roger Brooke Tawney, did not regard slavery as a national evil. Johnson and his nominee, Abe Fortas, were not unsympathetic to blacks and poor whites. But each, as president, failed to perceive fully the deep currents underlying political dissatisfaction in his day. Both took a peculiarly personal view of the presidency and of the uses of presidential power. Each was quick to anger at personal disloyalty, and each was eager to reward personal devotion. As Tawney served Jackson well and was rewarded, so Fortas served Johnson and, in the president's mind, deserved nothing less than the Supreme Court. Cronyism has earned an abiding place in American history. Presidents from Washington through Nixon have approached their power to nominate members of the Supreme Court with varying attitudes. Executive or legislative power is distinctly different from judicial authority, and presidents who have had little contact with the court sometimes have regarded those appointments the way they looked upon a nomination to fill a cabinet vacancy, or any other high political position, in which the appointee serves at the pleasure and direction of the president. Most presidents, however, seem to have put Supreme Court nominations on a loftier plane. John Quincy Adams wrote in his diary, quote, As the Supreme Judicial Court is the tribunal of last resort for the construction of the Constitution and the laws, the office of Chief Justice is a station of the highest trust, of the deepest responsibility, and of influence far more extensive than of the President of the United States, end quote. Whether a Chief Justice such as John Marshall or Earl Warren or an Associate Justice such as Oliver Wendell Holmes exert a more extensive influence than the President on the nation, 
depends on the man and the times. But members of the court, who may serve for life, often have remained in office many years after the presidents who appointed them have gone. Thus, in respectful recognition of the longevity of justices and of their power to void as unconstitutional laws passed by Congress and presidential acts, most presidents seem to have regarded Supreme Court nominations as the highest they can make. Where they find their men upon whom to bestow such power, in the Senate, on lower courts, in the universities, among personal friends, or elsewhere, is another matter. Clearly, Lyndon Johnson viewed the Supreme Court as a lofty place, if not quite as celestial as John Quincy Adams saw it. Johnson's attitude stemmed from his earlier life. He first came to Washington in the early 1930s as a secretary to the Texas congressman, Richard M. Kleberg, and from that time on he was an active New Dealer, who was as close as he could get to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He won his own seat in the House of Representatives for the first time in 1937, the very time when the president was proposing to pack the Supreme Court. He had seen the court exercise its power to rule New Deal legislation unconstitutional. He had watched as President Roosevelt opened his assault on the court, and he saw the court change under the pressure of presidential and public opinion, even before FDR named a majority of its members. Johnson, as an aspiring politician, also had more than a second-hand view of the court. He had a personal opportunity to observe at first hand the power of the Supreme Court, or at least the power of a justice. After serving in the House of Representatives in Washington for 11 years, in 1948, Johnson returned to Texas to run for a seat in the United States Senate. His most prominent opponent in the Democratic primary election was the state's former governor, Coke Stevenson. It was a close race, requiring a runoff election in which Johnson received 494,191 votes and Stevenson 494,104 votes. The 87-vote difference in nearly a million votes cast resulted in denunciations on both sides and lawsuits. Stevenson's lawyers moved the issue into a federal district court in Texas and obtained a temporary restraining order which prevented the Texas Secretary of State from printing Johnson's name on the ballot for the November general election until the court held further proceedings on Stevenson's vote fraud charges. Time was short. Johnson's lawyers flew to New Orleans to appeal the restraining order to the United States Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. An appeals court judge decided, despite the Johnson lawyers' plea for quick action, that a panel of appellate judges should hear the case, and, in the interim, the restraining order would remain in effect. Thereupon, the Johnson lawyers flew to Washington, where a young attorney named Abe Fortas took over. He took the matter to the next higher level of authority, which was Mr. Justice Black. Justice Black was the circuit judge for the Fifth Circuit. Each member of the Supreme Court sits as appellate judge for one or more of the circuit courts of appeal. Fortas presented Johnson's case to Black, and the justice signed an order staying the district court's temporary restraining order. Lyndon Johnson's name was then printed on the Texas ballot. On November 2, 1948, Johnson, as the Democratic candidate, of course, handily defeated the Republican candidate and took his seat in the United States Senate. Had Justice Black, who was Franklin Roosevelt's first Supreme Court appointee, not signed the stay order, Johnson well might not have been elected to the Senate, or have become Senate Majority Leader, and then Vice President, and President. Many years later, after Lyndon Johnson had been in and out of the White House, the late Mr. Justice Black still had on the wall of his inner office in the Supreme Court building a specially tinted and personally autographed picture of Lyndon Johnson. President Johnson, for several good reasons, then, had great respect for the power and prestige of the Supreme Court. A vacancy on the court was of the highest order of nomination he could make, and the grandest of gifts he could give. When he announced the nomination of Abe Fortas, he was completely sincere in saying that Fortas, quote, was my first choice for the position now vacant on the Supreme Court, end quote. He also said, quote, 
I have regarded Mr. Fortas as one of the nation's most able and most respected and most outstanding citizens, a scholar, a profound thinker, a lawyer of superior ability, a man of humane and deeply compassionate feelings towards his fellow man, end quote. That also was sincerely said, even if Johnson's native Texas verbiage made it sound less than sincere. Fortas as a lawyer was indeed both a brilliant advocate and a compassionate defender. He practiced law at a large, old, highly polished desk in what once must have been the drawing room at the front of a Victorian red-brick mansion which housed the Washington law firm of Arnold, Fortas, and Porter. The firm long since had outgrown the mansion, spilling its more junior partners into four nearby office buildings, but the old red mansion at 1229 19th Street, a half-dozen blocks from the White House, remained the home of a firm and the preferred location of its senior members. Its large rooms were elegant still, and downstairs there was a well-stocked bar, to which those invited would retire in the late afternoon. Suitable old mansions, preferably with large center halls and impressive stairways, are desired places of business for many big city law firms, for their reflected solidity and good taste. And firms that are forced into glass and steel skyscrapers often go to great expense to disguise their modern offices with winding staircases, somber wood paneling, and old English hunting prints. By these standards, the Victorian mansion of Arnold, Fortas, and Porter was made even more impressive by its circular driveway in front, on which sometimes were parked black Cadillac limousines. The suggestions of elegance, prestige, and power were not inappropriate. Arnold Fortas and Porter was one of the largest and most successful law firms in Washington, and, in the summer of 1965, Abe Fortas was its most eminent member. Fortas was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1910, the fifth child of a Jewish family that had no wealth. He went to work at the age of 13 and made his way through Yale Law School and then came to Washington in 1934 to work for the New Deal. His mentors among New Dealers close to President Roosevelt included William O. Douglas at the Securities and Exchange Commission and Harold Ickes at the Department of the Interior. And in 1942, Fortas, at the age of 32, rose to the position of Undersecretary of the Interior. Soon after the end of World War II, he left the government to become one of the first of that considerable number of Washington lawyers who, having served the Roosevelt administration, engaged in their private practice of a special kind of law, which consisted in no small part of leading big corporate clients and their lawyers through the legal mazes of bureaucracy which the New Deal had spawned. Other generations of Washington lawyers, having served subsequent Democratic and Republican administrations, have followed, and now Washington has more lawyers per capita than any other city in America. After World War II, Fortas teamed up with Thurman Arnold, who, under Franklin Roosevelt, had headed the Justice Department's Antitrust Division, and with Paul A. Porter, whom President Truman had appointed head of the Office of Price Administration. Arnold, Fortas, and Porter grew quickly and steadily. Its first client was the Coca-Cola Company, and, by 1965, the roster of giant corporations it served included Pan American World Airways, Braniff Airways, and Federated Department Stores as well as other equally desirable clients, such as the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico and the National Retail Merchants Association. The three founding members became rich, if not in the sense of accumulated wealth, then certainly in terms of an annual income of more than $150,000 each. Mrs. Fortas, who in her professional life uses the name Carolyn Agar, was a lawyer and the firm's expert on tax matters. With her additional income, the Fortasses could well afford to drive their silver-colored Rolls-Royce, to live in a large five-bedroom house in the Georgetown section of Washington with a swimming pool outside and fine antiquities inside, and to summer in another large house overlooking Long Island Sound in Westport, Connecticut. If financial success may be taken as evidence of a lawyer's brilliance and advocacy, 
It does not necessarily illustrate the compassion which President Johnson attributed to Abe Fortas. That was another side of Fortas, and of the firm of Arnold, Fortas, and Porter. Nowadays, it is fashionable for large law firms to contribute a bit of their talent and time to the defense of black or young defendants whose causes are not popular and who cannot pay legal fees. Corporate clients who pay very well may, of course, indirectly help to subsidize this kind of compassion. But this firm, from the time of its founding, contributed a part of its considerable legal talents to the defense of indigents and others whose civil rights seem to the firm to be endangered. Messrs. Arnold, Fortas, and Porter were liberal Democrats, but the reasons they accepted politically unpopular cases of clients who could not pay were explained also by the Times. It was the era in which Washington was almost spellbound by fears of communist subversion, and Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin was the principal spellbinder. It was a time when Richard M. Nixon, as a young congressman from California, rose to national prominence predominantly as an investigator of the loyalty of Alger Hiss. The young Nixon was not a propagator of McCarthyism, but neither did he disassociate himself publicly from Senator McCarthy. In those times, it took courage for a prominent law firm to step out in defense of the accused. The hostility of many lawyers to this kind of work in which Arnold, Fortas, and Porter was engaged was demonstrated by the exchange between Paul Porter and another lawyer at the golf club. Quote, Paul, the other lawyer said, I understand your firm is engaged in defending homosexuals and communists. End quote. Quote, That's right, Porter answered. What can we do for you? End quote. Arnold, Fortas, and Porter deserve some credit for the dissipation in the late 1950s and early 1960s of the internal security hysteria. For example, it won vindication in the courts for a group of army employees at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, whom McCarthy had accused of disloyalty. Fortas successfully defended Owen Lattimore, a Johns Hopkins University professor, against perjury charges that grew out of accusations that he was or had been a communist sympathizer. Arnold and Porter won from the Supreme Court a decision that voided a loyalty board ruling against Dr. John F. Peters, who was a professor of medicine at Yale University and a part-time consultant to the government. The lawyer who argued the Peters case for the government in the Supreme Court was an assistant attorney general named Warren Earl Berger. Fortas also was accorded professional acclaim, by his liberal peers anyway, for two cases he argued and won as court-appointed counsel for indigent defendants in more ordinary types of criminal trials. In one, the Durham case, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia established a modern test for criminal insanity in the District of Columbia, and the decision had wide effects throughout the nation. The second was Gideon v. Wainwright, decided by the Supreme Court in 1963. Fortas's skillful advocacy before the Warren Court in that case established in law that indigents brought to trial in state courts on serious criminal charges have a constitutional right to court-appointed counsel. Abe Fortas was then an eminently successful Washington lawyer, professionally, financially, and socially. He was a welcome guest in some of Washington's best homes, with or without the violin he played with great talent. After Johnson became president, Fortas occupied a still higher place in Washington. He sometimes played his violin at White House Social Affairs, and he was a visitor there on many other occasions. How many? None but Fortas and Johnson will ever know. Nor will it be known whether sometimes the black limousines in the circular driveway in front of 1229 19th Street delivered White House personages to the offices of Arnold, Fortas, and Porter. For Abe Fortas served President Johnson as a personal confidant, sharing a relationship not unlike that which joined President Woodrow Wilson to Colonel Edward M. House, President Roosevelt to Harry Hopkins, or President Nixon to John Mitchell. A president, any president, seems to require a confidant whose judgment he respects, whose loyalty is beyond question, and whose ambitions are for the president alone. 
Lyndon Johnson's need of a wholly personal, totally loyal confessor was perhaps even greater than that of most other presidents, and Abe Fortas filled that need. In some ways, Johnson and Fortas were not alike. Fortas was small in stature, precisely proper in his manner of dress, and quiet in his way of speaking, using profanity only selectively, and then in an unoffensively effective sort of way. Lyndon Johnson was big, noisy, and did not use profanity selectively. It would have been absolutely unthinkable for Abe Fortas to pull up his shirt in public, as President Johnson did, to display the scar on his abdomen where the doctors had made an incision. But, in other and more significant ways, Johnson and Fortas were alike. Each in his way was a man of overpowering ambition, who had scrapped his way from poor beginnings in the South to a pinnacle of power in the national capital. Each had aimed for and attained personal wealth, although Johnson's attainment was considerably greater than Fortas's. Both respected and enjoyed power, and they could be resourceful and tough in exercising their respective kinds of power. Johnson and Fortas had known one another since each had come to Washington in the 1930s as New Deal Democrats. They had been of particular service to one another at least since 1948, when Fortas helped Johnson to be elected to the Senate. Fortas served as personal counsel to Mr. and Mrs. Johnson for many years, and in November 1963, Fortas was one of the few people who were at Johnson's side almost constantly in those hectic days that followed the assassination of John Kennedy. One of the chores Fortas performed for the Johnsons in those days was to draft the legal document by which Mrs. Johnson placed in trust with a pair of Texas friends her stock in the LBJ Company, which owned radio and television stations in Texas and which was the foundation of the Johnson family wealth. An incident that grew out of the trusteeship of the LBJ Company's stock illustrated the intimacy of the Johnsons and Fortas. After Johnson ascended to the presidency, the LBJ Company became a politically sensitive matter. The company's investments in radio and television properties, which of course were regulated by the federal government, had grown rapidly in the same years during which Johnson's political stock was rising, first as a member of the House of Representatives, and then as a member and majority leader of the Senate. The Johnsons had become millionaires as a result of the investments, and, consequently, when Johnson became president, the press in Washington became more interested in the details of the accumulation of the family wealth. But President and Mrs. Johnson refused to talk about the family business, and the White House press office referred inquiries to the two Texans, whom Mrs. Johnson had named trustees of her stock. But the trustees would not talk either. Instead, and without being asked by the press, Fortas called reporters to say that he would answer questions for the Johnsons. And, from the desk of the Victorian mansion, he did answer. The greatest reward Johnson could confer on his brilliant and compassionate friend of long standing would be to make him Chief Justice of the United States. But the President's first thought was that Fortas should be his Attorney General. When Robert Kennedy resigned as Attorney General in 1964, the position became available. Fortas, however, did not want it. He had held a high position in the executive branch many years earlier, and he convinced Johnson that he could better serve the president from his office than from the Justice Department. But when Stevenson died, the president refused to be convinced that Justice Goldberg should not be moved to the United Nations, and Fortas would not be the nominee who would fill the first Supreme Court vacancy available to this president. The fact that neither Goldberg nor Fortas wanted the honors, which the president for different reasons sought to bestow on each, did not deter Johnson. Goldberg had found the work of the Supreme Court and the companionship of the other justices satisfying and sufficient. In his field, he had also been a most successful lawyer. His field was labor law, and he had been general counsel to the United Steelworkers of America and a principal architect of the merger of the American Federation of Labor with the Congress of Industrial Organizations. 
1961, he had joined John Kennedy's cabinet as Secretary of Labor. The following year, two vacancies occurred on the Supreme Court, and they were the only two appointments John Kennedy made to the court. The first vacancy occurred in March, when Justice Charles E. Whitaker, a conservative and not particularly outstanding Eisenhower appointee, became disabled and could no longer serve. Kennedy named the vacancy Byron R. White, who was deputy to Attorney General Robert Kennedy. In August, failing health forced the retirement of Justice Felix Frankfurter, and President Kennedy nominated Goldberg. Goldberg thus had become the fourth occupant of the quote-unquote Jewish seat on the Supreme Court. President Wilson had created the seat in 1916 by appointing Louis Brandeis to the court. Goldberg's other predecessors in the seat were Benjamin Cardozo and Felix Frankfurter, and his successor, as Lyndon Johnson would have it, would be Abe Fortas. But Justice Goldberg did not want to leave, and felt he should not leave the Supreme Court. In the White House Rose Garden on July 20, 1965, Johnson conceded that Goldberg had agreed to resign from the court and go to the United Nations, quote, at the insistence of the president, end quote. When Goldberg stepped before the microphones in the Rose Garden to reply, he said, quote, Thank you, to Johnson, and then added with audible sadness, I shall not, Mr. President, conceal the pain with which I leave the court after three years of service. It has been the richest and most satisfying period of my career. End quote. A few of its members in history have taken temporary leave of the Supreme Court to undertake presidential assignments, as Justices John Jay and Oliver Ellsworth did to be ambassadors, and as Justice Robert H. Jackson did much later to serve President Truman at the Nuremberg trials in Germany after World War II. But justices' acceptance of such presidential assignments, even though temporary, have been severely criticized, and permanent departures from the court for allegedly higher office have been almost unheard of. The Constitution, in conferring lifetime tenure on members of the Supreme Court, assumes they will neither seek nor accept more. Goldberg sought no more. He left the Supreme Court at Johnson's urgent request, apparently hoping that after a suitable period of time at the United Nations, the president would reappoint him to the court to resume his service there. But Goldberg extracted from Johnson no firm promise that he would return to the court, and Johnson did not return him. Footnote. Goldberg's role at the United Nations was apparently as frustrating as Stevenson had found his under Johnson. Goldberg was increasingly cut off from the power centers in Washington, and he resigned from the UN position in April 1968. Thereafter, he practiced law in New York City as a partner in the firm of Paul, Weiss, Goldberg, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison. In 1970, Goldberg was an unenthusiastic and unsuccessful Democratic candidate for governor of New York. He maintained silence concerning the Supreme Court until the spring of 1971, when, as the conservative Burger Court was emerging, he warned that history and tradition counsel, quote, against the future overruling of the Warren Court's libertarian decisions, end quote. Goldberg, writing in the New York Times, on the Supreme Court, April 12, 1971, page 37, and April 13, 1971, page 37. End footnote. Fortas's reasons for not wanting to go to the court have not become crystal clear with the passage of time. His respect for the power of the Supreme Court was never in doubt. Perhaps he was satisfied where he was. Perhaps his reasons related to personal matters, financial or other. Perhaps his ability to assess his own future and that of the court and the nation was more acute than the vision of Lyndon Johnson. In any event, Fortas, like Goldberg, in the end was unable to defeat Johnson's determination and flattery. In the East Room, where Johnson announced the Fortas nomination two days after Goldberg was off the court, the president said, quote, Mr. Fortas has, as you know, told me on, as you know, told me on numerous occasions in the last 20 months that he would not be an applicant or candidate, 
or would not accept any or would not accept or would not accept any appointment to any public office. This is, I guess, as it should be, for in this instance the job has sought the man. Fortas agrees the duty and uh, Fortas Mr. Fortas agrees the Mr. Fortas agrees that the duty and the opportunity of service on the highest on the highest court in this on the highest court in this great country, on the highest court of this great country, is not a call that any citizen can reject. End quote. The Senate almost perfunctorily confirmed Johnson's nomination of Fortas to sit on the Supreme Court. The Judiciary Committee held a hearing that lasted less than three hours. Senator Al- Senator Albert Gore introduced the nominee. Senator Albert Gore introduced the no- Senator Senator Albert Gore introdu- introduced the nominee. Senator Albert Gore introduced the nominee to the committee because Gore repre- because Gore represented Fortas's home state of Tennessee, and because Gore was a liberal Democrat who was pleased to make the introduction. The American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Federal Judiciary. The American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Federal Judiciary told the committee it found the nomination, quote-unquote, highly acceptable, quote-unquote, highly acceptable. Fortas's friends from Coca-Cola, federal de- Federated Department Stores, and elsewhere attested to his worthiness. The only, opposition which, the only opposition was voiced by two witnesses whose testimony harked back to the discredited, Mar- to the discredited McCarthy era. One suggested to the committee that Fortas at one time might have belo- might have quote, belonged to a committee belonged to a committee with a lot of communists on it end quote. The other witness brought up Fortas's defense of Owen Lattimore. The Judiciary Committee, although a bastion of although a bastion of Senate conservatism, without undue hesitation rec- without undue hesitation. The Judiciary Committee, although a bastion of Senate conservatism, without undue hesitation, recommended, re- recommended approval of the Fortas nomination. When the nomination reached the Senate floor on August 11, 1965, only three, senator, only three senators, only three senators rose to, rose, to speak, rose to speak against it. The three, all conservative Republicans, were Carl T. Curt- were Carl T. Curtis of Nebraska, Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, and John J. Williams of, Denewa- of Delaware. Senator Curtis, Senator Curtis charged that Fortas had, quote, put the United States last, end quote, when, during the 1964 presidential election campaign, Fortas had gone to newspaper editors in Washington to ask them whether news of the arrest of White House aide Walter Jenkins on more... When, when during, during the 1964 presidential campaign, Fortas had gone to newspaper editors in Washington to ask them to withhold news of the arrest of White House aide Walter Jenkins on a morals charge. But the opposition was insignificant, and the Senate confirmed the Fortas nomination by voice vote. Monday morning, October 4, 1965, the Supreme Court opened its new term, and as Chief Justice, Earl Warren led the seven other incumbent justices to their seats behind the long bench in the marble courtroom. The marshal of the court sounded his traditional chant, Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay, all persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. And, with President Johnson seated in the courtroom, Abe Fortas raised his right hand and swore to defend the Constitution and the court, and the marshal escorted him to his seat at the bench. Thus did Lyndon Johnson, by his will, create an event that was the first in a chain, the end of which Johnson thought he could see, but which, as it turned out, he could not. 
But 1965 was a deceptive year. The year before, Johnson had secured his own right to the presidency with an overwhelming victory at the polls. He was renowned in Congress as a president of legislative mastery. And, in placing Abe Fortas on the Supreme Court, he was fulfilling a personal desire and, incidentally, preserving the libertarianism of the Warren Court. But the euphoria of 1965 was a prelude to crisis for Johnson and for the Supreme Court. End of chapter one. I feel that I have done what I can do at the UN in the cause of peace, and I feel now that I can best continue to serve the cause of peace free of the intense preoccupation of my UN office. I undertook the assignment at the UN because I wanted to make a contribution to bring peace in Vietnam. So long as the situation existed where that was a possibility, that the UN could play a constructive role in peacemaking, I stayed on. Uh, when the president made his announcement, and when it became apparent from the Korean attitude that the forum for the peacemaking would be outside of the UN, the main reason which took me to the UN uh, was exhausted. Uh, not that there is not other great important work to be done at the UN. I think you all remember Adlai Stevenson's story of what he thought. Uh, he said that uh, service at the UN uh, entails a capacity to absorb alcohol, to observe protocol, and to use Geritol. <laughs> Chapter 2. The Nature of the Court The Supreme Court is a quiet, even a mystical place. It is possibly the only place in Washington or anywhere else where the President comes and says nothing, or usually says nothing. The quiet is such that the Court's marble temple is not wired for instantaneous television transmissions, as are the White House and the Capitol. The Court speaks only through its opinions and not through press releases. The relative unpretentiousness of its emblems of authority is such that the court has but one black Cadillac limousine, which is assigned to the chief justice and shared by him with the associate justices, as necessity demands. Admittedly, the Supreme Court has been changing since President Nixon came to its chamber. The traditional quiet, the unpretentiousness, and the dignity are entirely appropriate to the role of the Supreme Court in American government. There are essentially three kinds of power a government can exercise over, or on behalf of, its people. In the United States, the power of the sword belongs to the president, the power of the purse to Congress, and the power of the law to the court. The power of the law is most basically a moral power which commands obedience to the extent that the governed believe the law to be justly and equally applied. Almost all civilized nations, including the most totalitarian, have supreme courts. However, a Supreme Court is not particularly vital to the people in nations where it is merely the court of last resort in the interpretation of laws that are written by the elected or appointed governors who hold the powers of the sword and the purse. The Supreme Court of the United States is uniquely vital to the people because it is not merely the court of last resort for the interpretation of laws enacted by Congress and signed by the President. The Supreme Court participates in the making of the law and it is the third co-equal branch of government because America has a written constitution 
and the Supreme Court also is the final interpreter of the Constitution and its amendments, including the Bill of Rights. The Constitution separates and limits the powers of each of the three branches of the central government. It reserves to the states the powers not allocated to the central government, and it commands that the central government, and through the 14th Amendment, the states, not tread on the rights which the Bill of Rights reserved to the people. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and the court is the final interpreter of the Constitution. The Supreme Court is, then, the ultimate protector of individual liberty, and of the mutual covenant which is the Constitution. Paul A. Frund of Harvard, in writing about civil disobedience among citizen demonstrators who lack an effective voice in government, has said, quote, Fidelity to law is an obligation based on reciprocity, on the right of participation. The moral covenant, unhistorical as it may be as a ground of political obligation, reflects a long and vital philosophic tradition going back at least to the Old Testament and coming down through the Mayflower Compact. Participation in the political community implies more than the mere right to vote. It implies equality of access to administrative and decision-making posts, including places on the police force, in the probation service, on the judiciary, and generally in those positions through which the community exerts force against recalcitrant members. End quote. The court's role as final arbiter of the Constitution is checked by the constitutional proviso that the court can rule only on cases and controversies brought before it. The limitation is not without force, but in fact all of America comes before the long mahogany bench. Americans seem to forever be rediscovering with fascination Alexei de Tocqueville's observations of more than a century ago that in the United States there is almost no major political issue which sooner or later is not converted into a legal question and taken to court. In our constitutional democracy, it could hardly be otherwise. Rapists, murderers, and thieves come regularly before the Supreme Court to plead for their rights, and so do General Motors Corporation and the Communist Party of the USA. But in recent history particularly, the court's major decisions have not evolved from the pleadings of individual parties. The major cases and controversies, while still styled as individual pleadings, have in fact been decided with the adversary participation of the principal organizations that speak for the various divisions in American society, including the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, the National Association of Manufacturers, and the American Civil Liberties Union, as well as the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the various states. The court thus decides broad issues of law and order, of affluence and indigence, of conservation and industrialization, that organized Americans often present to the other branches of government, and that the other branches often could resolve. There is then no reason for dismay in the fact that the Supreme Court in American history has been damned as well as praised, or that great struggles have been waged and are being waged again for control of the court. Attention among the three branches of government is inevitable, and the Constitution assumes only that no one of the three will gain dominance over the others. At any time in history, any branch might lead, although none should race too far ahead or fall too far behind. Certainly the rights and privileges which the Constitution guarantees the people are more likely to be fulfilled when Congress moves toward resolution of major issues on which the nation is divided, and still more will be accomplished if the President shares a leadership role with Congress. The rights of black citizens to voting quality, for example, are much more likely to be significantly obtained through Congress and the President than through the Supreme Court alone. Congress has the money, and the President controls the law enforcement machinery. But, more important, 
These are the branches which react to and influence the will and desire of the majority of the public, which, in the end, must agree to abide by the law, whether written by Congress and signed by the President, or written by the court. In popular political rhetoric, the court is practicing, quote-unquote, judicial restraint, or, quote-unquote, strict constructionalism, when it declines the role of leadership, and it is practicing, quote-unquote, judicial activism, or, quote-unquote, loose constructionism, when it assumes leadership ahead of the other two branches in the resolution of the nation's social, economic, and political problems. But such labels are false and misleading, despite their contemporary usage in Washington. The Supreme Court fails the Constitution and the nation when its members take a restrained and subordinate view of their role in government. At such times in history, when the court has fallen into lockstep with the other branches, it has risked becoming a mere rubber stamp, particularly for the president. But what popularly is called judicial activism also can lead to national disaster, as when the court has used its power as final arbiter of the Constitution to obstruct or defeat the legitimate leadership of the other two branches in the resolution of large social, economic, and political problems. On such occasions, the court has rendered upon itself what Charles Evan Hughes termed self-inflicting wounds. The most illustrious hours in the court's histories have come when it has asserted positive leadership, as it did in the early days of the Republic under Chief Justice John Marshall, and in more recent times under Chief Justice Earl Warren. After the vicious attacks on the Marshall Court and on the Warren Court subsided, the other branches and the nation followed the court's lead. Clearly, then, when the majoritarian branches will not or cannot respond to the legitimate claims of citizens to rights and privileges which are theirs, the Constitution demands that the court exercise leadership. For where great issues and large numbers of citizens are involved, if the court, as the government branch of last resort, turns away those who are denied their rights and privileges, then the moral force of law will give way to lawlessness and the mutual covenant may be broken. The Constitution and its Bill of Rights are brief documents that set forth powers and privileges only in broadest terms. Their breadth has permitted them to survive as the nature of America's problems has changed over nearly 200 years, and it is the reason why the court is a powerful and stormy place. And it is the reason why the court is a powerful and stormy place, its quiet notwithstanding. Celestial guidance is unavailable to give specific meaning to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in each succeeding generation, so the justices must choose their independent course with reference only to their own consciences and to the essential morality which underlies the documents. Quote, the first requisite for one who sits in judgment on legislative acts is that he be a philosopher, end quote, Professor Frund has written. The second, he added, quote, is that he be not too philosophical, end quote. When the court has erred, Congress, with the concurrence of three-fourths of the states, can amend the Constitution. But, generally, when it has rendered its self-inflicting wounds, the court, without correction by constitutional amendment or by the arrival of a new majority, has reversed itself before it was too late. Until the present time, the court has erred only once on a great and divisive issue, and the mutual covenant was broken. It was the American issue which more than any other was with this nation on the day its constitution was adopted, and is with us still. The issue, of course, was and is the rights and privileges of black Americans, and, on this issue, the covenant once was broken, when the Supreme Court was overruled by civil war. In the first years of the Republic, political power was about evenly divided between slave states and those which had abolished or were in the process of ending slavery. 
Congress did nothing to disturb the situation, and could hardly have acted on a matter of such gravity had it wanted to, for it was far from certain how much of their autonomy the states had given up to the federal government under the new constitution. In those early years, the Supreme Court did not have much to do because nobody brought much of anything to it. President Washington sent the first Chief Justice, John Jay, off on a diplomatic mission to England. It was not until John Marshall was appointed in 1801 that presidents ceased using chief justices for ambassadorial assignments abroad, and it was still a few years more before the Marshall Court boldly established the presidents which have guided the exercise of government power ever since. In 1803, in Marbury v. Madison, for the first time holding an act of Congress unconstitutional, the court established the supremacy of the Constitution over any other conflicting law. In 1819, in McCullough v. Maryland, the court upheld from state challenge the power of Congress to charter the Bank of the United States, even though the Constitution did not specifically give Congress that power, and, for the first time, held that Congress may make all laws, quote, necessary and proper, which are not prohibited, on which the welfare of a nation essentially depends, end quote. And it was in 1824, in Gibbons v. Ogden, in a classic interpretation of the power of the Constitution delegated to Congress to relegate commerce, where the court laid down the doctrine that when a law of Congress and a law of a state collide, state law must fall. The slavery issue soon came before Congress, the President, and the Supreme Court in various forms. The Congress that sat under the old Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution, had adopted in 1787 the Northwest Ordinance, covering the westward land lying north of the Ohio and east of the Mississippi rivers, and with it adopted an attached compact with settlers in the territory, stating, quote, There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in said territory, end quote. In 1803, the Louisiana Purchase was signed, and Congress did nothing to change the legal status of slavery, which had been permitted in the Louisiana Territory under French law. As Ohio, Louisiana, and other states carved out of these Northwest and Louisiana Territories were ready to come into the Union, they entered, alternatively, as free or slave states, and the national political balance on the issue was thus maintained. In 1819, there were 22 states in the Union, 11 of them slave states, and 11 free states. But Missouri, a border state, threatened to tip the balance, and its entry was debated for months in Congress. The result was the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Missouri entered the Union as a slave state, and Maine entered as a free state. But, most importantly, slavery was, quote-unquote, forever prohibited in the vast territory lying north of a line 36 degrees 30 minutes latitude. For some years after 1820, slavery was not a burning political issue. As more states entered the Union, the balance was more or less maintained, and new compromises were hammered out in Congress. By a compromise in 1850, for instance, Southerners in Congress accepted the abolition of the slave trade in the District of Columbia, and Northerners swallowed the Fugitive Slave Act, which made it far easier for slave owners to obtain the return of blacks who had escaped to the North. Through these years, Southerners agitated for a repeal of the Missouri Compromise, and in 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which in effect did repeal the 1820 Compromise, by giving to the people of the states to be carved from these two territories the right to determine whether they would enter the Union as slave or free states. Abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison burned a copy of the Constitution, and John Brown, madman as well as abolitionist, raided the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry. Still, there remained hope that men such as Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, 
so long as they lived, would succeed in forging new compromises, and, with them, by time. Time for the realization of some scheme by which Congress would solve the slavery problem, under law, by abolishing slavery. One possibility, long discussed by reasonable men, was a plan under which the federal government would compensate southern slave owners in exchange for abolition of racial servitude. In Congress and out, the slavery issue was debated in terms of constitutional rights versus slave states. During the 34 years John Marshall presided over it, the Supreme Court put down firm bridges over which Congress might have passed to a settlement of the issue under law. Chief Justice Marshall strongly supported the concept of federal supremacy over the states and eloquently upheld the right of Congress to exercise broadly the powers allocated to it by the Constitution. He wrote in one famous decision of the court, quote, Powerful minds taking as postulates that the powers expressly granted to the government of the Union are to be contracted into the narrowest possible compass, and that the original powers of the states are retained may, by a course of well-digested reasoning, explain away the constitution of our country, and leave it a magnificent structure, indeed, to look at, but totally unfit for use, end quote. And in another he wrote, quote, the sound construction of the Constitution may allow to the national legislature that discretion, which will enable that body to perform the high duties assigned to it, in the manner most beneficial to the people. Let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution, and all means which are appropriate are constitutional. The constitutional doctrines that rang forth from the Marshall Court frightened and angered the Chief Justice's fellow Virginians, even though the Supreme Court, in his lifetime, did not rule directly on the issue of whether black slavery violated the Constitution and its Bill of Rights. Yet, John Marshall came close to the issue. The case of Gibbons v. Ogden, decided in 1824, concerned steamboats, not slaves, but the Chief Justice's opinion used the occasion to assert that, while Congress in 1803 had passed a law allowing the states to decide whether they would permit the continued importation of slaves, that law, quote, constitutes an exception to the power of Congress to regulate commerce, end quote. Marshall's assertion caused alarm in the South. Five years later, in 1829, the Supreme Court decided its first case in which the question of slavery was involved. The question was whether a slave, drowned in a steamboat accident, was freight, for which the steamboat company would be liable, or was a passenger, for whom it presumably would not be liable without further legal action. Quote, in the nature of things, the Chief Justice rules, and in the nature of his character, he resembles a passenger, not a package of goods. It would seem reasonable, therefore, that the responsibility of the carrier should be measured by the law which is applicable to passengers, rather than the carriage of common goods. End quote. Chief Justice Marshall died in office in 1835, at the age of 79, and President Andrew Jackson, serving his second term, would name his successor. Slavery, at that time, was not a consuming political issue, and it had not moved on to the court of last resort. The nomination and confirmation of Marshall's successor, therefore, did not turn directly and inevitably on the issue of slavery. Marshall's strong support for federal supremacy and the implications his doctrine held for the slavery question, of course, had made the Supreme Court extremely controversial. The nomination of his successor, therefore, marked one of the great political struggles for control of the future of the Supreme Court. But the struggle seems not to have been waged in terms of the constitutional philosophy of the nominee so much as over partisan politics and cronyism. Jackson's choice as the new Chief Justice was Roger B. Taney, a plain man who had made his mark not in the law, but in politics. 
the rough and tumble of Jacksonian democracy had great crowd appeal, and with it began a first era of anti-intellectualism, populism, and politics in Washington. Tawney was a Marylander, who had been an early supporter of Jackson for the presidency. In 1831, he became Jackson's attorney general. Later, he took a leading role in the president's battle against the Bank of the United States, and for this the Senate refused to confirm his nomination to be Secretary of the Treasury. Jackson's defiant reaction was to nominate Tawney to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. The Senate, by a close vote, postponed action indefinitely, which was tantamount to rejection of the nomination. When Chief Justice Marshall died, Jackson once more dared the Senate by nominating Tawney to be Chief Justice. Another vacancy having occurred, the President, at almost the same time, nominated Philip P. Barber of Virginia to be an Associate Justice. The Whigs in the Senate objected strongly to both men and delayed action for nearly three months, hoping Jackson would withdraw the nominations. But Jackson refused to budge, and finally, under an executive session of the Senate in which no records were kept, Tawney and Barber were confirmed on March 16, 1836. Of the new Chief Justice, a New York newspaper editorialized, quote, The pure ermine of the Supreme Court is sullied by the appointment of a political hack. End quote. Chief Justice Tawney was not a political hack, but neither did he possess the qualities of mind and spirit or the firm belief in constitutional supremacy that made John Marshall great. Tawney remained Chief Justice for 28 years, which proved ultimately to be the most violent in the nation's history, and, as such, the most disastrous for the Constitution and the Court. The monumental constitutional bridges built by the Marshall Court were not immediately burned by the Tawney Court. Indeed, so fundamental were they to the national pursuit of happiness and prosperity that subsequent courts in later years broadened them to carry an ever heavier weight of federal legislation. But great principles, constitutional or other, are not built in absolutely steady progression. The language of the Constitution is so broad and the facts of each case and controversy so different that the court can change direction without explicitly overturning prior decisions, if it so desires. Marshall did not deny all power to the states, and Taney did not reject totally the concept of federal supremacy. But, Taney placed a higher value on states' rights than had Marshall, and Taney changed the court as Southerners hoped and Northerners feared he would. His first important opinion, delivered the year after he became Chief Justice, suggested that change was in the wind. The opinion upheld the authority of Massachusetts to permit construction of a second bridge across the Charles River at Boston, and thus to break the monopoly of the owner of the first bridge, which the state had franchised. Property rights are not to be, quote-unquote, sacredly guarded, Taney wrote, but the opinion upheld the authority of Massachusetts to permit construction of a second bridge across the Charles River at Boston, and thus to break the monopoly of the owner of the first bridge, which the state had franchised. Property rights are to be, quote-unquote, sacredly guarded, Taney wrote, but, quote, we must not forget that the community also has rights, end quote. The case did not pit state authority against federal power, and it remains famous not as the definition of states' rights, but of the superiority of public over private rights. Nonetheless, it suggested the new Chief Justice's attitude towards states' rights, as well as his populism. Four years later, the Supreme Court decided another case which was further evidence that Taney did not hold the federal government in the highest esteem. Federal versus state power again was not directly involved, but slavery was. The Spanish schooner Amistad had cleared Havana, Cuba on June 27, 1839, 
with a cargo of 54 blacks who had been brought recently from Africa by Spanish slave traders. Out of Havana, the slaves rose and seized the ship, killing the Spanish captain and the cook and sparing the lives of two other white Spaniards aboard so that they could navigate the vessel for the coast of Africa. But the Spaniards had changed course and steered for the United States. On the morning of August 26th, the Amistad was discovered off Montauk Point, Long Island, by the U.S. brig Washington. The Navy crew boarded and took possession of the schooner and sailed her into New London, Connecticut. The blacks were taken to jails in New London and Hartford, under custody of a United States marshal. Claims and counterclaims then were filed in the Federal District Court of Connecticut for the schooner and its crew. The commander of the Navy brig filed for a share of the salvage value, and certain local Connecticut residents also claimed a share. The two Spaniards who had navigated the Amistad northward filed claims to the slaves. The U.S. Attorney for Connecticut, William S. Holabird, filed on behalf of the Spanish government a claim which had been presented to the American government by Spain's minister to the United States. The official Spanish claim asserted that the Amistad and her slave cargo were the property of Spanish subjects, and that the United States was obligated by its 1819 treaty with Spain to restore them to their owners. And, finally, two white New England abolitionists, who were among a growing band of early civil rights lawyers in the North, took it upon themselves to represent the jailed blacks. The two white lawyers filed, on behalf of the blacks, answers to the various claims in which they asserted that the U.S. government had no right to intervene in the case, and insisted that the blacks, having arrived in the free state of Connecticut, now were free men. The district court ruled that, since the blacks were born free and kidnapped in Africa, in violation of the laws of Spain prohibiting its subjects from engaging in the slave trade, they were to be delivered to the U.S. president to be transported back to Africa. The U.S. government and the abolitionist lawyers, on behalf of the blacks, both appealed, and the circuit court affirmed the district court's decision. Before the Supreme Court, the controversy was shorn of its non-essential features. On one side was the federal government, represented by Henry D. Gilpin, attorney general in the Van Buren administration, wanting to turn the blacks over to Spain, which presumably would try them for piracy. On the other side were the blacks, whose case for freedom now was being argued by abolitionist lawyer Roger Sherman Baldwin of Connecticut and by former President John Quincy Adams, now 74 years of age and a vigorous abolitionist member of the House of Representatives. The case had drawn wide national attention, and the Supreme Court listened to arguments for eight days. On March 9, 1841, the court handed down its decision. It held that the United States was not obliged by treaty to return the blacks to Spain, because slavery was illegal under Spanish law, and the slaves were thus not the lawful property of Spanish subjects. The court reversed the lower court's decisions that the blacks be turned over to the president. Inasmuch as the voyage of the Amistad violated no U.S. laws prescribing the slave trade, the blacks were simply declared to be free by the court. Eventually, they were returned by the United States to Africa. In the Amistad case, then, the Taney court rejected the attorney general's argument that the court must be bound by the terms of the U.S. treaty with Spain, but the decision made no new constitutional law directly bearing on the slavery controversy in America, and perhaps it was significant that the opinion of the court was written by Justice Joseph Story rather than Chief Justice Taney. Taney did not dissent to the Amistad decision, and, as a personal matter, he did not condone slavery. As a young man, he had released slaves he had inherited. But, as time would show, Taney did not preach what he practiced when states' rights came into direct and unavoidable conflict with the human rights of blacks, 
and the authority of the federal government to secure those rights. Its decision in the Amistad case notwithstanding, the Taney court came more and more to be regarded as pro-slavery long before it finally confronted, directly and unavoidably, the ultimate constitutional question. In one decision, for example, it upheld the interests of Mississippi in an issue involving payment for slaves imported from another state. In another, it upheld the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Act, the South's gain in the Compromise of 1850. And, finally, in 1857, at a time when the slave question was waxing in the political arena and igniting incidents of violence in various parts of the nation, the court came to the ultimate question and renounced John Marshall's doctrine of federal supremacy, thus thwarting Congress and the possibility of peaceful compromise without constitutional amendments. It was when the Chief Justice was 80 years old, and decades after he had freed his own slaves, that the Taney Court decided the Dred Scott case. Dred Scott was a slave, owned by one John Emerson, an army surgeon who was stationed at St. Louis. Missouri, under the Compromise of 1820, was a slave state. Dr. Emerson, accompanied by Dred Scott, in 1834 commenced a journey which took him first to a post in Rock Island, Illinois, and then to Fort Snelling in what later became the state of Minnesota. Illinois was a free state under the Northwest Territory Ordinance of 1787, and the Minnesota Territory was free under the Compromise of 1820. In 1838, Dr. Emerson returned to Jefferson Barracks near St. Louis, still owning as his slaves Dred Scott and Harriet, whom Dred had married with Emerson's permission at Fort Snelling, as well as the two daughters, Eliza and Lizzie, who had been born to Dred and Harriet Scott. Not long after their return to Jefferson Barracks, Dr. Emerson died. In 1846, Scott sued Emerson's widow in a Missouri court, claiming that their sojourn on free soil made him and his wife and daughters free. The state Supreme Court held in 1852 that under Missouri law he and his family remained slaves. The following year, Scott's case was filed in federal court and started its way to the Supreme and started its way and started on its way to the Supreme Court, which decided it in 1857. It is unclear what or who motivated Scott in 1846 to begin the action in the state court. He was an obscure, apparently good-natured slave who would not have filed the original suit unaided. Once in federal court, Scott's case clearly became an abolitionist cause. Attorney General Gilpin, in arguing the Amistad case before the Supreme Court, had pointed out that the case had not been brought by slaves, but, quote, the question of freedom or slavery was brought at the instance of persons who took up the cause of the slaves, end quote. Similarly, Scott's case in federal court was aided and abetted by an early breed of civil rights lawyers and abolitionists in St. Louis. It was planned to be a constitutional test case. By 1852, when the Missouri Supreme Court decided Scott's case, the Emerson widow had remarried. Her new husband was a strong abolitionist member of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts, C.C. Shafee. Mrs. Shafee arranged a fictitious sale of Scott, his wife, and their children to her brother, John F.A. Sanford, who resided in New York. The party of the so-called sale was to establish that the parties to the case resided in different states and thus to create a federal court jurisdiction on the basis of diversity of state citizenship. The plans thus having been carefully laid, the abolitionist lawyers filed suit in 1853 in federal court in St. Louis. Scott's suit claimed again that, because he and his family had been removed to free soil, they could not be owned in slavery. The issue was best put by Chief Justice Taney when the question was decided by the Supreme Court. Quote, 
The question is simply this. Can a Negro, whose ancestors were imported to this country and sold as slaves, become a member of the political community formed and brought into existence by the Constitution of the United States, and as such become entitled to all the rights and privileges and immunities granted by that instrument to the citizen? End quote. The federal court in St. Louis ruled against Scott on May 15, 1854, and the case began to attract national interest as one more stage on which the issue of slavery was being debated with growing heat and emotion. There were growing numbers of seizures by U.S. Marshals under the Fugitive Slave Act of runaway slaves in the North. There was, in St. Louis itself, the old courthouse where Dred Scott's first case had been tried, and on the steps of which black men, women, and children were auctioned off. Ahead, as Dred Scott's final case was making its way to the Supreme Court, was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, with which Congress left the slavery question to popular sovereignty and brought on a massacre in so-called Bleeding Kansas. There was consternation in Congress when Representative Preston R. Brooks of South Carolina responded to a vicious anti-slavery speech by Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, titled The Crime Against Kansas, by beating Sumner over the head with a cane as he sat helplessly at his desk in the Senate chamber. There was the emergence of Abraham Lincoln of Illinois as a voice that spoke against slavery, but without viciousness or any intention of abruptly abolishing slavery as it existed in the South. The Supreme Court heard arguments on the Dred Scott case in February and again in December of 1856. In the interval, James Buchanan of Pennsylvania was elected president, and the Dred Scott case engaged Congress, where Northerners, fearing what might come, introduced legislation to reorganize the court. Buchanan took office on March 4, 1857, and in his inaugural address spoke of the case before the court. Quote, in common with all good citizens, I shall cheerfully submit to the court's decision. End quote. He said, adding that the issue of slavery in the territories and new states, quote, will be speedily and finally settled, end quote, by the court. The court, three days later, inflicted its wound upon itself and the nation. Each justice wrote a separate opinion. A clear majority, headed by Chief Justice Taney, concluded that the status of a slave was fixed by the law of the state in which the question was raised, and that Dred Scott, under Missouri law, therefore remained a slave. The court could have stopped there. But six of the justices, led by Taney, concurred in the further holding that, inasmuch as slavery was for the states to decide, blacks could not be U.S. citizens, and Congress was without power to exclude slavery from any state or territory. By this ruling, the court held unconstitutional the Missouri Compromise, even though it had been nullified by Congress three years earlier. Worse, far worse, the court's ruling foreclosed future legislative compromise without constitutional amendment. In his opinion, Taney said, quote, No word can be found in the Constitution which gives Congress a greater power over slave property, or which entitles property of that kind to less protection than property of any other description. End quote. The Chief Justice then went forward alone, in his opinion, to complete for his time the destruction of the Supreme Court as a symbol of equal justice under the law. Searching the Constitution for meanings that could not under Marshall's statement of its purpose be there, Taney referred to colonial sentiment in the century that preceded the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, saying that Negroes, quote, had been regarded as being an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race either in social or political relations, 
and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. End quote. Whatever Tawny was searching for, the words were racist and were taken to be his own. The court's repudiation of the humanism on which the Constitution must finally rest was in turn repudiated by the Civil War four years later, and then by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. The court could not alone have prevented war, if no more it could have remained neutral. Instead, it ruled for slavery, foreclosing political compromise, and itself becoming a cause of war. End of chapter 2 I feel that the first letter I write, after the receipt of this intelligence, should be addressed to you, to express the deep sense I shall ever retain of the constant kindness with which you have supported me, until you have finally placed me in the high station which I now fill, and which is the only one under the government that I ever wish to attain. There are indeed circumstances connected with my appointment which render it even more gratifying than it would have been in ordinary times. In the first place, I owe this honor to you, to whom I had rather owe it than to any other man in the world, and I esteem it higher because it is a token of your confidence in me. In the second place, I have been confirmed by the strength of my own friends, and go into the office not by the leave, but in spite of the opposition of the men who have so long and so perseveringly sought to destroy me. And I am glad to feel that I do not owe my confirmation to any forbearance on their part. And it is still further gratification to see that if providence spares our lives, it will be the lot of one of the rejected of the panic senate as the highest judicial officer of the country to administer in your presence and in the view of the whole nation, the oath of office to another rejected of the same Senate. When he enters into the first office in the world, and to which it is now obvious that enlightened and virtuous people are determined to elect him, the spectacle will be a lesson which neither the people nor politicians should ever forget. Roger Taney to Andrew Jackson Chapter 3. The Abiding Issue It was four years short of a century from the time the Tawny Court decided the Dred Scott case until the Warren Court was formed. It was the Supreme Court which before and again after the Civil War most brutally turned away the Negro in America. The blacks waited nearly a century before they finally found some measure of satisfaction in the Constitution and the Court. No issue has plagued the conscience of America longer, led to more violence, or been a bigger wart on our Constitution, than racial justice. If the survival of the nation through civil war, race riots, and internal strife is tribute to the resilience of the Constitution, it is also impressive evidence of the patience of blacks. Their forbearance is difficult for a white man in America to understand. Slavery was ended by war, in which blacks as well as whites died, and the Constitution was amended to give Negroes the civil rights the Tawny Court had said they could not have. For a moment after the war, Negroes began to collect what the Constitution said was theirs, but only for a moment. The promises remained empty for nearly a century, and Negroes still have not gained rights fully equal to those of white citizens. Those leaders, white and black, who spoke most eloquently and stood most resolutely for equal rights, have been assassinated. Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, 
Robert Kennedy. The law cannot change men's minds. It cannot erase prejudice, fear, and hatred from white minds, or insecurity, anxiety, and fear from black minds. But law, if it is the law, as that word is understood in a constitutional democracy, can control men's actions and help to lead to a change in men's minds. This is what Abraham Lincoln meant when he declared the Dred Scott decision to be wrong, saying the law cannot make men equal, but equality of rights is an essence of a free society, quote, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, end quote. Footnote, in a speech at Springfield, Illinois, June 27, 1857, end footnote. Lincoln spoke those words before the Civil War. Today, in large part because of the Warren Court's moral leadership, more legal rights have been accorded the black minority than a century ago. But equality with the white majority still is not approximated even closely. Today, Negroes have more and expect more. And if, or when, in some tomorrow, black aspirations, expectations, and pretensions rise to a level which whites can fully understand, a new accommodation must be had, or the violence of a century ago may be repeated. This apparently is what President Eisenhower had in mind when, on sending federal troops into Little Rock, Arkansas, to quell the mobs that opposed a federal court's school desegregation order, he said his action was required by the oath he had taken to support the Constitution, and, quote, failure to act would be tantamount to acquiescence in anarchy and the dissolution of the Union, end quote. Mr. Eisenhower made the statement after Senator Richard Russell of Georgia had likened the president to Adolf Hitler for dispatching troops to Little Rock. There subsequently were news reports from Washington to the effect that the president had remarked privately that his appointment of Earl Warren as chief justice was the worst mistake he had ever made. If the remark was made, it did not represent Dwight Eisenhower's public attitude toward civil rights or the Warren court, and it was the president's public stance that was crucial. Because President Eisenhower sent troops to Little Rock, and because he and Presidents Kennedy and Johnson after him possessed the political courage to support the Warren Court's leadership in civil rights, a start towards racial accommodation was begun. But it was a long, long time in coming. So deeply had the Supreme Court wounded itself with the Dred Scott decision that the court, in a sense, did not recover its place as the third coordinate branch of the federal government from Taney to Warren. One usually does not think of the court in the name of its chief justice, except when a strong man has sat in that chair. And in the period that covered most of the last half of the 19th century and ran well into the first half of the 20th, the names best known and honored are those of strong men who became famous as dissenters rather than as leaders of a court majority. Foremost are the names of the first John Marshall Harland, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis D. Brandeis, and Benjamin N. Cardozo. Dissent may be more productive of philosophic discourse than is concurrence, and these dissenters rank high as philosophers in America, and their dissents often became the law of the land at a later date. So gross was the Taney Court's abuse of trust that President Lincoln, early in the Civil War, ignored a writ issued by the Chief Justice challenging the constitutional authority of the President to allow military tribunals to try civilians. Taney died in 1864, when the war was three years old, and Lincoln appointed Samuel P. Chase to succeed him, probably in order to get rid of Chase, who had been a troublesome member of the president's cabinet. The court played no significant part in the events of the Civil War or the Reconstruction era which followed. When Lincoln announced his Emancipation Proclamation in September 1862, it was more a tactical gesture than a fact. It freed the slaves in the Confederate states, where it could not reach, but not in the border states which remained loyal to the Union, he timed the proclamation, which went to the heart of the reason for the war, to take advantage of the Union victory at Antietam. 
to reinforce morale in the North, and to gain support among European nations which might otherwise have given substantial help to the Confederacy. The President relied on his constitutional power as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy to issue the proclamation, and it would have been a good constitutional question to ask whether he was acting within his constitutional authority or whether the power to free slaves rested only with Congress. The question was never answered, and there was no need to answer it. In February 1865, after General William Tecumseh Sherman marched through Georgia to the sea and the South was defeated militarily, Congress proposed the 13th Amendment, saying, quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States, end quote. A few months later, Lee surrendered at Apotomax Courthouse in Virginia, ending the war. In June 1866, Congress approved the 14th Amendment, conferring United States citizenship on blacks and saying, quote, No state shall abridge the privileges of citizens, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote. It was followed three years later by the 15th Amendment, saying, quote, The right to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote. Each amendment was ratified by the required number of states, and by those in the South as a requisite to readmission into the Union. A century later, it often is forgotten that, in the several years immediately after the war, many thousands of Negroes in the South exercised their new right to vote. A number of blacks, many of them educated men who had been freed long before the war, served in state legislatures, on the courts, and in Congress. One, Hiram R. Revels, was elected in 1870 to the Mississippi seat in the United States Senate once held by Jefferson Davis. For the moment, Southern whites seemed to be accepting the demise of slavery and the blacks were being helped by the federal government to exercise their voting rights, to secure fair wages from their former owners, and, where necessary, to obtain food, clothing, and medical care. But the willingness of the North to promote and of the South to accept change soon were brought to an end by a complex of factors over which historians still disagree. The North's willingness to forego malice towards the South was reflected in Lincoln's Reconstruction policies. But Lincoln was assassinated, and his successor, who adhered to these policies, President Andrew Johnson, was impeached and nearly convicted by Congress. Congress, for a time, imposed military rule which the South deeply resented. The South resented, perhaps even more, and feared, the political emergence of the Negroes, who outnumbered whites in some parts of the South. There were race riots. Hundreds of blacks were killed in Memphis and New Orleans. The Ku Klux Klan and similar white supremacy gangs were organized to terrorize and murder Negroes. The initial reaction of southern states and cities to abolition and to Negroes' exercise of their rights as free men was the enactment of quote-unquote black codes, which prohibited Negroes from carrying guns or having whiskey, barred them from working in trades without getting a license, restricted their street movements, and in many other ways kept blacks in their place. The black codes were repealed by the Union's military governors in the South and by Congress, which in 1866 passed the first Civil Rights Act to give Negroes the same rights as white men, quote, to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties and to none other any law, statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom to the contrary notwithstanding, end quote. The South found other means. The states turned to voting standards and poll taxes that effectively disenfranchised Negroes, to zoning laws which effectively restricted areas in which they might live, and to the separate but equal idea of segregating the races with Jim Crow laws. 
The laws separated blacks from whites in railroad cars and on trolleys and buses, in schools and hospitals, at restaurants and hotels, and barbershops, restaurants, water fountains, and virtually everywhere else. The facilities of blacks were separate, but rarely equal. Congress in 1875 passed another Civil Rights Act to enforce the 14th Amendment against the Jim Crow laws. It was, quote, an act to protect all citizens in their civil and legal rights, end quote, outlawing racial discrimination in hotels and inns, on public conveyances, in theaters, and in other places of public amusement. With Taney long gone and the Supreme Court's elevation of states' rights brought down by the Civil War, it would be thought that the court finally now would acknowledge John Marshall's dictum that the Constitution, to endure, must be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. The opportunity for the court to redeem itself came as Negroes and civil rights lawyers brought a number of cases and controversies before the court. In one group of cases, blacks, citing the 1875 Civil Rights Act, challenged their exclusion from a hotel restaurant in Topeka, an opera house in New York, and the dress circle of a theater in San Francisco. In the civil rights cases, decided in 1883, the Supreme Court threw out the 1875 Act as unconstitutional. Eight justices decided that the Act, quote, steps into the domain of local jurisprudence, end quote, and if the private corporation or businessman wanted to discriminate against blacks, there was nothing Congress could do about it. The 14th Amendment gave Congress power only over discrimination practiced by a state, the majority ruled. Justice Harlan dissented in a strong 36-page opinion asserting that corporations and businesses served public functions and were subject to the limitations which the amendment placed on states. The court finished its evisceration of the 14th Amendment a dozen years later. Homer Adolph Plessy, a Negro, had boarded a train in New Orleans and seated himself in a car for whites. The conductor ordered him to move to a Jim Crow car, as required by Louisiana law. He refused and was arrested. Albion Turgey, a gifted novelist and lawyer, argued Plessy's case but failed to convince the majority of the justices. The court in 1896 upheld the constitutionality of Jim Crow laws under the 14th Amendment and adapted the separate but equal idea as doctrine. It was a fallacy for blacks to assume, quote, that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority, the court said. If this be so, it is solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction on it, end quote. Justice Harlan dissented, quote, The present decision will not only stimulate aggressions, more or less brutal and irritating, upon the admitted rights of colored citizens, but will encourage the belief that it is possible by means of state enactments to defeat the beneficent purposes which the people of the United States had in view when they adopted the recent amendments of the Constitution. Sixty millions of whites are in no danger from the presence here of eight million blacks. The destinies of the two races in this country are indissolubly linked together, and the interests of both require that the common government of all shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. In my opinion, the judgment this day rendered will, in time, prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case. End quote. Harlan's prescience soon became obvious enough. The court's decision stimulated aggressions, both brutal and irritating, on blacks, although it did not, or has not yet, proved as pernicious as the decision in the Dred Scott case. Between 1889 and 1918, more than 2,500 Negroes died in lynchings and riots some of the worst of which were in Illinois, Ohio, and Indiana. Brutality, it would seem, was stimulated by the abolition of slavery. 
Segregation of schools and housing became the law not only in the South, but in border states as well, and segregation became the practice in parts of the North. In Washington, the seat of government, federal offices, restaurants, and restrooms were segregated, and in practice, public facilities were separate, but not equal. By 1915, South Carolina was spending $23.76 for the education of the average white child in public school, and $2.91 for the average black child. Blacks then had appealed to the court of last resort for the equal justice under the law, which they had thought had been won with the Civil War. The court had put them in their place. And then the court and the country turned to other interests. Clearly, the turning of the court that began under Chief Justice Taney continued for many, many years. The issues changed, but the court, for three decades into the 20th century, remained remarkably consistent in unwisely and unrealistically thwarting John Marshall's doctrines and elevating property rights on occasion to a place in the Constitution superior even to states' rights. Congress in 1890 passed, and President Benjamin Harrison signed the Sherman Act, the country's first federal antitrust law, to bar monopolies and price-fixing and to countervail the great concentration of industrial power which were being assembled by John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, James J. Hill, and other men who were the new aristocracy, born of the rapid industrialization which began after the Civil War. Economic freedom always has been regarded as a necessary counterpart of political freedom in the United States, and Congress, in exercising its constitutional power to regulate commerce, was attempting to ensure that private trusts and monopolies would not infringe on the competitive equality of others. But the Supreme Court, over Justice Harlan's dissent, rejected the first significant antitrust case brought before it by the Justice Department by refusing to hold the Sugar Trust in violation because, it said, the Sherman Act could apply only to, quote-unquote, commerce, and the Sugar Trust was engaged in, quote-unquote, manufacturing. In other antitrust cases against Standard Oil Company of New Jersey and American Tobacco Company, the court, still over Justice Harlan's dissent, developed what was called the quote-unquote rule of reason, meaning that only quote-unquote unreasonable restraints of trade were illegal and the rest were legal. The court did not throw out all of the government's antitrust suits, but it injected into the Sherman Act a lasting weakness and uncertainty which many years later led John Kenneth Galbraith to assert accurately that antitrust enforcement was a quote-unquote charade. Congress enacted the first federal income tax, a 2% tax on incomes over $4,000, and some of the nation's most prominent citizens saw in it the seeds of anarchy and communism. The Supreme Court in 1895 held it unconstitutional, reasoning that the Constitution required a tax on income to be apportioned according to population. Justice Harlan's dissent said the court's ruling was, quote, a surrender of the taxing power to the moneyed class, end quote and the decision was overruled in 1913 by the ratification of the 16th Amendment. The court in 1905 struck down as, quote, unnecessary and arbitrary, end quote, and thus a violation of the 14th Amendment, a New York state law which said bakers were not to work more than 60 hours a week. Justice Harlan dissented, as did Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who observed that laws might be, quote, novel and even shocking, end quote, and still be constitutional. The first President Roosevelt had appointed Holmes in 1902. Harlan died in 1911. The two, so different in background, did not always vote together. Harlan, a Kentuckian and former slave owner, was a convivial man with a bald head and a big nose, who was said by a friend to go to bed with, quote, one hand on the Constitution and the other on the Bible, end quote. 
Holmes once described him as, quote, the last of the tobacco-spitting judges, end quote. Holmes, descended of Boston and Harvard, was a scholarly man whose appearance became more distinguished as his huge mustache and full head of hair turned white. But both Harland and Holmes had served in the Union Army in the Civil War, and on the court they shared a philosophical kinship, even though they sometimes disagreed, particularly when Holmes did not see the Sherman Act as a great blessing. The repressive laws which Congress enacted and President Wilson enforced during World War I were exceeded, if ever, as instances of panic persuasion only by the government herding the U.S. citizens of Japanese ancestry into detention camps during World War II. In 1917, Congress passed the Espionage Act, intended mainly to punish interference with the draft, and in 1819 a Sedition Act, which was broad enough to jail almost anyone critical of the war or government. There were some 2,000 prosecutions under the 1917 law, and Justice Holmes, writing for a unanimous court, held the law did not violate the First Amendment guarantees of free speech and press. But Holmes dissented when the court upheld the 1918 law, sending to prison leafleteers who urged the quote-unquote workers of the world to support the Russian Revolution, and when it upheld a New York State criminal anarchy law, jailing U.S. Communist Benjamin Gitlow for circulating his left-wing manifesto. Justices Holmes and Brandeis both dissented in two cases, with Holmes seeing no national danger in, quote, these poor and puny anonymities, end quote. President Wilson had named Louis D. Brandeis to the court in 1916. He took Justice Harlan's seat as Holmes's frequent co-dissenter, and often there was a threesome with Harlan Fisk Stone, whom President Coolidge named in 1925. In the court's so-called Gay Twenties, the majority overthrew minimum wage laws of three states, and a law Congress passed to fix minimum wages for women in the District of Columbia. To the latter decision, which seemed to flow from the 19th Amendment giving women equal voting and other legal rights with men, Justice Holmes replied in dissent, quote, It will need more than the 19th Amendment to convince me that there are no differences between men and women. End quote. A Harvard professor named Felix Frankfurter in 1930 wrote, quote, since 1920, the court has invalidated more legislation than in 50 years preceding, end quote. A court so dedicated to a dead past and so enthralled with the property rights of moneyed classes and corporations, even where these clashed with states' rights, could stand only so long as most whites were prosperous, most blacks weren't rioting, and the occupants of the White House were preoccupied with wars abroad, or were simply passive men. When those conditions no longer held, the court could not stand for long, and it did not. When Justice Holmes retired in 1932 at the age of 90, President Hoover named Benjamin N. Cardozo, quote, Mr. Hoover performed what was probably the most popular act of his presidency, end quote, Professor Freund has said. Cardozo succeeded to the seat and the dissenting role, which had been occupied by Justice Holmes. Brandeis, Stone, and Cardozo, each was the product of an Eastern school, Harvard, Amherst, and Columbia, respectively, and each was prominent in the law before his appointment. In the first three months of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, Congress enacted 15 major laws which vastly expanded federal authority to deal with the Great Depression. The excesses of the affluent 20s had come tumbling down. The stock market crashed, many banks failed, farm prices tumbled, and nearly 20 million people were on relief. The Supreme Court, which happened to be moving into its new marble temple at the time, was not as insensitive to the world around it as sometimes is said. It began to change quite soon, and change was far advanced before President Roosevelt was able to name a majority. Of course, the court read the election returns and heard President Roosevelt's criticism of it, and some of the justices were moved, 
and some were not. But this is no cynical commentary on those who were moved. Those who were moved did not abandon their independence of judgment to political expediency, and surely to change is better than to be insensitive to the end, as Chief Justice Taney once had been. The change was beginning to become apparent in 1934, when the court handed down a 5-4 decision upholding a New York state law which fixed milk prices to prevent them from falling more. Among those 15 emergency New Deal measures enacted in 1933, the court upheld passage of the Federal Securities Act and creation of the Tennessee Valley Authority. The majority sustained the policy of reducing the dollar's value in gold. But six of the so-called nine old men held unconstitutional as an invasion of states' rights the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Stone, Brandeis, and Cardozo joined in a strong dissent, saying, quote, Courts are not the only agency that must be assumed to have capacity to govern, end quote. In a 5-4 decision, the majority voided as unconstitutional Congress's attempt to strengthen wages and prices in the soft coal industry, saying these were, quote-unquote, local evils. In perhaps its best-remembered anti-New Deal decision, the court held unconstitutional a key portion of the National Industrial Recovery Act, but that decision in 1935 was unanimous. Congress, with that law, went too far in delegating to the president the power to fix wages and prices in concert with industry, and in suspending in a wholesale fashion the antitrust laws for businesses which cooperated with the president. Many New Dealers came to share the unanimous court's conclusion that the 1933 law went too far. Many also feared that the National Recovery Administration was becoming an administrative monster. The National Recovery Administration's Blue Eagle was not a disastrous loss. Congress incorporated its best features in the National Labor Relations Act, which delegated the issue of unfair labor practices to an independent board instead of to the president. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision in 1937, upheld that delegation. The four holdouts changed least, and President Roosevelt proposed to Congress a court-packing plan to increase the court's membership to as many as 15 justices. But Congress wanted no part in so direct an assault on the court, and it is doubtful that the president was entirely serious. In any event, deaths and retirements gave FDR seven vacancies to fill from 1937 through 1941, and he named Hugo L. Black, Stanley Reed, Felix Frankfurter, William O. Douglas, Frank Murphy, Robert H. Jackson, and James F. Burns. Cardozo died in 1938, Brandeis retired in 1939, and Roosevelt elevated Harland Fisk Stone to Chief Justice, where he remained until his death in 1946. The court that FDR made concentrated first on the economic issues of its time, overruling the court's 1922 decision which held child labor laws a matter of exclusive state concern, and upholding much more new federal legislation. At times, the majority seemed to be ruling with less than a wholly independent mind, as in 1944, when it upheld the government's detention of Japanese Americans over the objection of three dissenting justices, who asserted the detention camps were, quote, a clear violation of constitutional rights, end quote, and, quote, utterly revolting among a free people, end quote. But, with time, the court that Franklin Roosevelt had made, and that President Truman continued, so far as the ideology of his appointees was concerned, seemed to regain its independence. The court, for instance, in 1952, told President Truman he had no constitutional authority to seize the nation's steel mills, even in wartime when they were faced with a strike that would halt production. It was an era when no great leader of a majority and no great dissenter emerged. No great leader did, in fact, come forth to make Justice Harlan's half-century-old dissents the law until the advent of Earl Warren. End of chapter 3
The dignitaries of the New Deal gather for the traditional victory dinner that celebrates their triumph at the presidential polls. If Franklin Roosevelt's first term began at a time of crisis for the country, his second begins at a time of crisis for the New Deal. If his first four years were marked by controversy and contention, his second four start with a political bombshell that divides the nation and splits his own party. He attacks the Supreme Court. And I defy anyone to read the opinions concerning the AAA, the Railroad Retirement Act, the National Recovery Act, the Guppy Coal Act, and the New York Minimum Wage Law, and tell us exactly what, if anything, we can do for the industrial worker in this session of the Congress with any reasonable certainty that what we do will not be nullified as unconstitutional. If we would keep faith, faith with those who had faith in us, if we would make democracy succeed, I say we must act now. The president calls on Congress to support his fight against what he terms the horse and buggy decisions of the Supreme Court. He asks that the court be liberalized by adding more and younger justices, calling his program court reform. But opponents denounce it as court packing and Roosevelt suffers a jolting setback when his plan is decisively rejected. The New Deal honeymoon is over. But another major New Deal measure sponsored by Senator Robert Wagner of New York is unexpectedly approved by the Supreme Court and new life is given to the American labor movement. Backed by the provisions of the Wagner Labor Relations Act, using it as their Magna Carta, the unions recruit millions of members in a nationwide drive for collective bargaining, the closed shop, higher wages, better working conditions. Strikes everywhere, in steel, oil, textiles. A surge of strikes. And a new kind of strike as well. Workers refuse to leave the automobile plants and hold them like fortresses, chanting, when the boss won't talk, don't take a walk, sit down, sit down. Chapter 4. The Warren Court Leads The ancient issue of white discrimination and black rights began to revisit the Supreme Court and the Constitution in the late 1930s. Why then? Perhaps because the Great Depression had degraded black masses even more than white. Perhaps also because a handful of Negroes had overcome discrimination, in the sports and entertainment worlds anyway. Jesse Owens won four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics in spite of Hitler's snubs of this non-Aryan. Because increasing numbers of Negroes were migrating to northern cities, where at least they were free to organize, and where, with the help of some whites, they had begun to contest discrimination in the South and the North. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the National Urban League had been formed two decades earlier, and these initial ventures in black self-help now were beginning to gain the strength of numbers and of self-assurance. Because, certainly, of a national climate inspired in Washington, 
where Franklin Roosevelt, now in his second term, had led massively successful assaults on old citadels of state and private power, and because the Supreme Court was coming around. Even before the 1930s, the constitutional issue had begun to return to the court, in sporadic bursts with long periods of silence between. In 1917, the court held unconstitutional a Louisville, Kentucky ordinance, which barred blacks and whites from moving into homes on city blocks occupied predominantly by members of the other race. In 1927, Justice Holmes held for a majority of the court that states violated the 14th Amendment by preventing Negroes from voting in primary elections. During these years, when the court invalidated a great deal of state and federal legislation dealing with social and economic problems, it did not invariably uphold Negro claims to racial equality. But neither did the court, which President Franklin Roosevelt attacked for voiding early New Deal legislation, invariably reject black claims. During the 1930s, the period of black silence grew shorter as more cases involving the issue of racial equality reached the court. In 1935, in a case from Alabama, the court voided as unconstitutional the trials of eight young Negroes because qualified blacks had been excluded from the juries which found the eight guilty of rape. In 1938, the court held that Missouri acted unconstitutionally when it told Negroes applying for entry to the Missouri Law School that it would pay their tuition at an out-of-state law school. These were decisions handed down during the years that the court was beginning to change under pressure exerted by President Roosevelt. But the court that FDR made did not become famous for its civil rights libertarianism. After World War II, blacks were silent no more in asserting their constitutional rights. War is a leveler of men and a creator of great expectations for the peace to come. But more, great wars abroad that are popular at home must be moral crusades against an evil foe. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, World War II became all of that, and it left deep impressions on many blacks and some whites in post-war America. Before the war was over, President Roosevelt began to desegregate government offices and restrooms in Washington, and he named the first Negro to the rank of general in the army. President Truman, in 1948, issued an executive order to end segregation in the armed forces. The late Ralph Bunch became Undersecretary of the United Nations, and Private First Class William Thompson in the Korean War became the first black soldier since the Spanish-American War to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. Negroes home from the wars took not to the streets to assert racial equality in America, but to the courts to establish for themselves and their children their right to an equal education. Before World War II, blacks had begun to test their new organizational strengths against the Missouri Law School and other institutions of higher learning. They won their most important victory after the war when the Supreme Court in 1950 held that Texas did not meet the separate but equal standard in establishing a new law school for blacks. In argument before the court, 11 southern and border states argued along with Texas that a new separate law school could provide Negroes with an education equal to that provided whites by an older, established law school. The Supreme Court unanimously rejected the state's argument, ruling that the new school could not provide educational equality because the older University of Texas law school, quote, possesses to a far greater degree those qualities which are incapable of objective measurement, end quote, including, quote, reputation of faculty, experience of the administration, standing in the community, traditions, and prestige, end quote. The 1950 decision eroded the separate but equal doctrine, which the court had established in 1896. But none of the decisions won by blacks against institutions of higher learning before or after World War II overturned the doctrine. 
It was only after expectations had been raised by the war, and after these preliminary victories were won in the court, that blacks mounted a direct assault on the doctrine and did so with a massive challenge of racial discrimination at the elementary and high school levels. By 1952, there were cases at the Supreme Court seeking the desegregation of public schools in South Carolina, Kansas, Delaware, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. The court in December of that year heard argument on the cases from South Carolina, Kansas, Delaware, and Virginia, but seemed unable to take the final step that would reverse the 1896 doctrine. The court's term ended in June 1953 with no decision. On September 8th, while the court still was in recess for the summer, Chief Justice Frederick M. Vinson, who had been appointed by President Truman in 1946, died suddenly. Earl Warren, President Eisenhower's first appointee to the court, took his oath as the new Chief Justice on October 5th, when the new term opened. Fifteen years later, on July 5th, 1968, Earl Warren looked back. Shedding judicial aloofness, he came down now, from the place above the noisy crowd. He held a press conference. It was in the East Conference Room of the Supreme Court building, a spacious room with wood-paneled walls, fireplaces, and handsome crystal and brass chandeliers that make it gracious and warm in contrast to the stark white marble of much of the rest of the building. The Rembrandt Peel painting of Chief Justice Marshall hangs over one of the fireplaces. Chief Justice Warren was asked to rank the court's major decisions of his time in order of their significance. The most important, he said, were not the school desegregation decisions, but the one-man, one-vote decisions which told the states to restore equal voting rights to those to whom voting equality had been denied. Second were the school decisions. Third were the decisions in the area of the rights of those accused of criminal offenses. For each of these decisions, the Warren Court was roundly denounced by some and stoutly defended by others, and the controversy it created was greater than at any time since the Marshall Court. But there was an underlying philosophy which bound much of the Warren Court's work when the other branches of government are not capable of responding to the rightful demands and grievances of the people, it is the proper role of the court to exercise leadership and initiate social change. Abe Fortas has stated, quote, Our law and law courts have often been the theater in which social conflict is acted out and its issues resolved. With the advent of the Warren Court, this role was progressively expanded, end quote. The Warren Court opened its doors and those of the federal court system to indigent persons and non-property classes who earlier had been thrown out by the courts and whose petitions to the executive and legislative branches were unavailing. In opening its doors and thus expanding its horizon to cases and controversies which in another day would not have been accepted, the court engaged in, quote, no real invasion of state authority, end quote, Professor Froon has written, quote, what the court has done is to insist on procedural observances by both federal and state agencies and on the standards of fair play which are implicit in the concept of due process of law, end quote. Blacks as a class, of course, benefited most because they had been denied most. But by no means was the Warren Court's insistence on procedural fairness and standards of fair play for blacks alone. Under the Warren Court's doctrines, it and lower federal courts have told highway planners that they must hear citizens who do not want their homes torn down to make way for another superhighway. The courts have told utility companies they cannot erect huge new power plants on broad rivers without listening to the objections of conservationists. They have told a federal agency it cannot renew a broadcasting station's license without considering the objections of the people who are the station's listeners. And the Warren Court conferred on citizens, quote, 
who assert only the status of federal taxpayers, end quote, the right to enter a federal court to challenge the constitutionality of certain federal spending programs. These are potent privileges for whites and blacks, and bureaucrats, legislators, and presidents may shudder at where they might lead. This, then, is the harmonizing theme that underlies so much of the Warren Court's work, its attempt to move toward a more open, more free society, and to renew the essential premise of the Mutual Covenant, the right to participation in government in exchange for fidelity to law. This is why Earl Warren said that the one-man, one-vote cases were, quote, the most basic decided in my time, end quote. If the electoral process was more truly representative of all the people, there would be less need for judicial intervention. The Supreme Court did not seek, for instance, the school desegregation issue, but took it when it came. Justice Robert H. Jackson, during argument before the Supreme Court on the school desegregation cases, observed that it, quote, is perfectly clear under the 14th Amendment that Congress is given the power and duty to enforce the amendment by legislation, end quote, adding, quote, the reason this case is here was that action couldn't be obtained from Congress, end quote. The Founding Fathers built into the Constitution what have been called fruitful tensions among the three branches of the federal government. If the tensions have been fruitful in advancing the people's pursuit of happiness while at the same time preserving their freedom, they also at times in history have been spectacular when one branch is locked in a power struggle with another. When the Warren Court stated what the law of the land must be in the one-man-one-vote, the school desegregation, and the criminal rights cases, it was asserting the supremacy of judicial authority more strongly than the court had asserted itself since the days of Chief Justice Marshall. The political controversy that surrounded the Warren Court on all sides was commensurate with its assertion of supremacy. That the Warren Court followed paths which were logical extensions of decisions arrived at before Earl Warren became Chief Justice served only to make Warren more controversial, for the court earlier hesitated to take those final steps which would bring it into real and immediate conflict with the other two branches. In taking those steps, the Warren Court seized the initiative in formulating solutions to pressing national problems which Congress and the White House had chosen largely to ignore. And the court's great and historic assertion of constitutional supremacy led eventually to jugular political combat over the future of the Supreme Court after Earl Warren. The school cases came first in the chronology of the Warren Court. The deliberations among the members of the court always have been tightly guarded secrets, but there is reason to believe that after the court heard argument on the school cases in December 1952, some of the justices were not willing to reverse the separate but equal doctrine. To ascribe to Earl Warren alone the court's subsequent unanimity in reversing the doctrine may be to credit the new Chief Justice's persuasive powers too highly. Nevertheless, after Warren arrived, the court in December 1953 heard the cases from South Carolina, Texas, Delaware, and Virginia re-argued, and on May 17, 1954, the new Chief Justice delivered the unanimous opinion of the court. The decision, more forceful and historic for its unanimity, reversed the separate but equal doctrine adopted in 1896 and established as the law of the land the position which had been taken by the late dissenting Justice Harlan. Chief Justice Warren's opinion held that separate schools for black children are inherently unequal, and therefore state laws which required racial segregation in education are unconstitutional. Quote, In the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. End quote. The Warren opinion declared. It continued, quote, 
In these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. End quote. Separate schools, even if they are equal in physical facilities, deprive black children of equal educational opportunities, he said. Quote, to separate them from others in similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. End quote. The 1956 decision is known as Brown v. Board of Education taking its name from the Kansas case, which was begun when Oliver Brown of Topeka sued the city school board on behalf of his eight-year-old daughter, Linda Carroll. The South Carolina, Delaware, and Virginia cases were decided with the Kansas case, and eventually the court's decision required the desegregation of elementary and high schools in 21 southern, southwestern, and border states where segregation existed by reason of state law. The court in 1956 did not say how or when the states must desegregate their schools. It studied the matter, and when it decided in 1955, it did not order immediate desegregation or fix dates in the future. Recognizing the practical problems ahead, it took a conciliatory attitude toward the South, saying that lower federal courts in supervising desegregation in their areas must require, quote, a prompt and reasonable start toward full compliance, end quote, and school districts must proceed, quote, with all deliberate speed, end quote. The school decisions rested on that part of the 14th Amendment, which says that states shall not deny to any person, quote-unquote, equal protection of the laws. The one-man, one-vote decisions flowed primarily from the same equal protection portion of the amendment, which had been proposed by Congress in 1866 and ratified by the states two years later. The criminal rights decisions were based on the portion of the amendment stating that no state, quote, shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote. The Warren Court's decisions enforcing the right of all qualified citizens to vote began in 1962. The 15th Amendment, proposed in 1869 and ratified in 1870, stated, quote, the rights of citizens to vote shall not be denied or abridged by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote. But in the South, blacks had been denied voting rights by a great variety of subterfuges, such as the poll tax, the white primary, and, as Anthony Lewis makes clear in Portrait of a Decade, his book about the first ten years of the Warren Court, by white violence and black fear. In the one-party South, the Democratic primaries were the only meaningful elections, and Negroes by state law and party rule were excluded from voting on the theory that primaries were private party matters. The Supreme Court, in a series of decisions that began with the Holmes opinion in 1927, held the white primaries and similar devices to be unconstitutional. The 24th Amendment, ratified in 1964, proscribed the poll tax in federal elections. The Warren Court, in 1966, finally banished the poll tax, to which four southern states still clung in state elections, even though it prevented poor whites, as well as blacks, from voting. The one-man-one-vote decisions were still more basic to the concept of political participation and self-government. In a most fundamental and practical sense, the decisions were related to the real and growing problems of the nation's cities, which increasingly have been abandoned by middle-class whites and left to poor whites and blacks. Many states, North and South, long had denied to city voters representation equal with that of rural voters by the simple device of failing to reapportion seats in state legislatures and in Congress as population patterns changed. With this device, 
voters in rural electoral districts maintained a disproportionately large share of political power, and the inequality of the situation became more glaring as urban electoral districts housed more and more relatively less affluent voters. The Tennessee legislature, for example, had not reapportioned districts since 1901, even though the state constitution required that legislative districts be redrawn every 10 years so that each legislator represented an approximately equal number of people. In Connecticut, about 10% of the people could elect a majority of the state representatives. In Vermont in 1950, one state representative represented 49 people and another represented 33,000 people. In Colorado, the state legislator in 1955 apportioned educational funds by giving Denver with 90,000 school children $2.3 million and giving a semi-rural school district with 18,000 children $2.4 million. The Supreme Court, beginning in 1946, had several opportunities to speak to the issue and declined them. Justice Felix Frankfurter, the Harvard professor whom President Roosevelt named to this court in 1939 to succeed Cardozo, and who remained until 1962, said in 1946, quote, Courts ought not to enter this political thicket, end quote. But the Warren Court entered in 1962, ruling in the case of Baker v. Carr, from Tennessee, that the 14th Amendment's guarantee of, quote-unquote, equal protection of the laws gives each citizen the right to equal representation in a state legislature, and malapportionment is a, quote, debasement of their votes, end quote. Justice William J. Brennan, appointed by President Eisenhower in 1956, wrote the majority opinion. By the end of 1962, citizens in 30 states had brought suits in federal courts seeking reapportionment of state legislatures. In cases decided in 1964 and later, the Supreme Court applied the one-man, one-vote formula to both houses of state legislatures, saying that differences in population apportionment among legislative districts could not rest on geographic, historic, or economic grounds alone and it extended the doctrine to congressional districts and eventually to some local election districts. Justice Frankfurter, until he retired, dissented as the Warren Court went marching into the political thicket. A new justice, John M. Harlan, grandson of the famous dissenter of a different kind, appointed by President Eisenhower in 1956, dissented in the voting rights cases on the grounds of states' rights. Another dissenter to the extension of the one-man, one-vote doctrine to congressional districts was Justice Potter Stewart a 1958 Eisenhower appointee. The Warren Court's criminal rights decisions, third in order of development, illustrate again the Warren Court's concern with the equality of all men. Men who are wealthy or prominent do not often find themselves in the criminal court, assuming their gains are not ill-gotten. And when they do, they demand their lawyers or their mouthpieces. The criminal courts are better known to the poor, the young, and the black, who are most likely not to know their right to counsel, if they can afford a lawyer their right to remain silent, and the other rights afforded them by the Constitution. The criminal rights decisions also illustrate the great validity of the Constitution as a statement of principles, and the great invalidity of any assumption that the principles mean other than what men say they mean. The first ten amendments, ratified in 1791, are known as the Bill of Rights because they stand against repression by enumerating not only freedoms of religion, speech, and press, but also, quote, the right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. End quote. The right not to be held for a quote, capital or other infamous crime, end quote, except on indictment of a grand jury, and the right not to be tried twice for the same crime, or to bear witness against oneself. The right to quote, a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, and to be confronted with the witnesses against him, end quote. 
and the right not to be oppressed by, quote, excessive bail or cruel and unusual punishments, end quote. The Supreme Court is the particular guardian of these rights, which always have applied to federal prosecutions and trials. But most criminal punishment in this country traditionally has been exacted under state law in state courts, and it still is. Although the enactment by Congress of more federal criminal statutes and the growth of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the fairly recent past is bending tradition, yet there still remain very large constitutional questions about the extent to which the Bill of Rights as a whole applies to the states, and the settled view of the Warren Court was that the criminal rights amendments did not apply to the states except in the most notorious of circumstances. And the settled view until the Warren Court was that the criminal rights amendments did not apply to the states, except in the most notorious of circumstances. In that background, the Warren Court, with less unanimity than in the voting or school decisions, proceeded to address itself to the issue of the powers of state and local police and prosecutors versus the rights of accused individuals. Applying the 14th Amendment's command that no state, quote, shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote, the court in the 1960s applied a number of the specific guarantees of the Bill of Rights to the states and thereby undertook a sweeping reform of state criminal procedure. In the famous case of Gideon v. Wainwright, argued before the court by Abe Fortas as court-appointed counsel, the court held that poor persons must be supplied with a lawyer at state expense in serious criminal cases. In other decisions, it held that indigents also must be supplied with lawyers for appeal and with court transcripts at public expense. It barred from state courts as well as federal, quote, evidence secured by official lawlessness, end quote, such as the entry of a house by police without a warrant. On the well-grounded theory that too often suspects are intimidated and worse in police stations, the court extended to state prosecutions privileges against self-incrimination, and, in the Escobedo and Miranda decisions, it built protections around the use in courts of confessions obtained by police. Revolutions begun by the judicial branch are most likely to succeed when they are launched by a court that is strongly led and unanimous, but court-directed revolutions can never succeed completely and permanently unless and until the other two branches, and ultimately the majority of the people, follow the court's leadership and accept its moral suasion. By these standards, then, the Warren Court's decisions striking down racial discrimination promised to be the most enduring of its works. Certainly, as those decisions ordering an end to discrimination began to unfold, presidents, congresses, and the nation started to fall in behind the court's leadership, but slowly, reluctantly, and with reservations. After the court in 1954 held separate schools for whites and blacks illegal, border states including Kansas, cities such as Baltimore, and several hundred school districts in many parts of the country voluntarily moved to integrate their schools. President Eisenhower directed that school segregation be ended in the District of Columbia. Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson sought from Congress progressively broader civil rights laws. Their commitments did not come easily, and each, with the possible exception of President Kennedy, avoided an overly broad commitment to the cause of civil rights. Nonetheless, Congress in 1957 passed the first Civil Rights Act since 1875 with the support of Republican Dwight Eisenhower and the help of the state Democratic Majority Leader, Lyndon B. Johnson. Its main provision allowed the Justice Department to bring suits on behalf of Negroes who were denied the right to vote in federal elections. In 1960, Congress passed another Civil Rights Act to augment the 1957 law by providing for federal voting referees to register Negroes where local election officials refused. Congress passed several more laws which, like the 1957 and 1960 Acts, relieved blacks of the sole responsibility to seek their own relief in court 
and brought to their assistance the administrative machinery of the federal government by placing on the Justice Department a responsibility for initiating suits. President Kennedy sent to Congress in 1963 a proposal for the most significant civil rights legislation that had been passed since the years immediately after the Civil War. It advocated a federal law to bar the exclusion of Negroes from restaurants, hotels, theaters, and other places of public accommodation. To permit the Justice Department to bring suits to force the desegregation of public accommodations, as well as schools, and to outlaw racial discrimination by employers and labor unions. President Kennedy did not secure its enactment. After his assassination, and after the Senate invoked cloture to halt a filibuster, the Senate passed the bill. President Johnson signed it into law as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In 1968, President Johnson obtained from Congress another significant Civil Rights Act, which outlawed racial discrimination in the sale and rental of private housing, and allowed the Justice Department to bring suits against landlords and real estate agents. Theoretically, at least, the 1968 law opened a way for blacks to escape urban slums for the green grass of suburbia. These legislative gains and presidential commitments after the court's crucial 1954 decision were not won simply because Congress and the White House were falling in behind the Warren Court. They were won also because blacks in the South, often aided by young people from the North, pressed their demands for equality on local officials in many southern cities and towns. In 1955, Mrs. Rosa Parks, a black woman, sat in the front section of a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama, which by custom was reserved for whites. She was arrested, and the Montgomery bus boycott began under the leadership of two Negro ministers, Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph D. Abernathy. Dr. King and a hundred other bus boycotters were arrested, and the turmoil continued for a year until the Supreme Court in 1956 declared it unconstitutional for Montgomery to segregate bus passengers. The tactic of nonviolent direct action, coupled with federal court action, spread across the South under its principal advocate, Dr. King, to lunch counter, theater, and other sit-ins, and it was against this background that the first Civil Rights Act was proposed in 1956 and enacted in 1957. Organized, nonviolent resistance to local discrimination and parallel in court actions by blacks often were met with white opposition and arrests. Fifteen days after Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1957, President Eisenhower sent federal troops into Little Rock, Arkansas, to quell white mob resistance to a lower federal court order under which nine black children were to enter Central High School with 2,000 white students. This kind of quote-unquote disgraceful action, as Mr. Eisenhower called it, strengthened the blacks' cause. In the 1960 presidential campaign, unlike four years earlier, both national party platforms endorsed new federal legislation to assist school desegregation, although, as Anthony Lewis wrote, GOP candidate Nixon in 1960 did not speak out boldly on the issue as he campaigned in the South that fall. So-called Freedom Rides rolled across the South in 1961, organized by the Congress of Racial Equality from its base in Washington, to desegregate inner-city buses and terminals. There were many arrests and a few bus burnings, and only then, and at the request of the Kennedy administration, did the Interstate Commerce Commission, created in 1887, order bus companies and railroads to desegregate transportation facilities in the South. In May 1961, the so-called Freedom Riders arrived in Montgomery, Alabama, and were met with violence. President Kennedy sent 400 armed U.S. Marshals and deputies to Montgomery, under the supervision of Deputy Attorney General Byron White, to restore order. Tension continued to mount, as in Albany, Georgia, where Dr. King was jailed again, and in Cambridge, Maryland, 
where blacks with shotguns were met by National Guardsmen with rifles, and blood was let on both sides. In 1962, President Kennedy sent troops to Oxford, Mississippi, under the supervision of Robert Kennedy's new Deputy Attorney General, Nicholas DeB. Katzenbach, to integrate the state's university by securing the admission of one black man, James Meredith. In Mississippi in 1963, NAACP leader Medgar Evers was murdered in the doorway of his home. In Birmingham, Alabama, a Negro movement led by Dr. King to integrate nonviolently public accommodations throughout the city was answered with police dogs, fire hoses, and then a bomb blast at the 17th Street Baptist Church, killing four young black girls who were attending Sunday school. On May 21, 1963, a federal district court ordered the University of Alabama to admit two Negroes, and Governor George Wallace rose to national prominence with the defiant declaration, quote, I embody the sovereignty of this state, and I will be present to bar the entrance of any Negro who attempts to enroll at the University of Alabama. End quote. He was physically present in the schoolhouse door, as he had promised, and was moved aside by soldiers sent in by President Kennedy and by an equally resolute Nicholas Katzenbach. The following day, June 11, 1963, the president made a national television address asking each American to, quote, examine his conscience, end quote, and recalling a plea for racial tolerance made by Justice Harlan at the turn of the century. Eight days later, the president sent to Congress what became, after a massive march on Washington, by 200,000 Americans white and black, and after the assassination of John Kennedy, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The next great advance in civil rights legislation came after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the black uprisings that spread all across the nation in the hours after his death. Dr. King, 39 years old, was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968. Within hours, blacks took to the streets in Washington to riot, burn, and loot, and whites fled the central city area in alarm and dismay. Within days, the racial violence erupted in 125 cities in 29 states. President Johnson quickly broadcast on national radio and television a statement in which he said, quote, America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. End quote. Shortly thereafter, the president urgently requested Congress to enact the civil rights bill he had requested two years earlier, and Congress, on April 10th, six days after King's slaying, finished action on the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which, in addition to its open housing provisions, contained an anti-riot section. As black and white violence flashed over those years, sporadically but with growing intensity, the Warren Court, in its quiet place, hewed to its constitutional line. Blacks, emboldened in the courts, as on the streets, brought many new legal challenges to advance their fight for equal justice under law, and one of the cases they brought asserted the novel theory that the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was not a dead letter. The 1866 law said that all citizens, quote, shall have the same right as is enjoyed by white citizens to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, end quote. A century after its enactment by Congress, it was assumed by almost everybody that the statute did no more than to grant blacks the legal capacity to buy and sell property. But blacks decided to test the law to see whether its provisions, which on their face were more sweeping than the Civil Rights Act Congress had passed in April 1968, had real meaning. In June 1968, the Warren Court, acting on a suit brought by a St. Louis Negro, 
resurrected the 1866 law by ruling in the case of Jones v. Mayer that a black man was entitled to sue for damages, a real estate developer who refused to sell him a house in a white suburb. The court subsequently decided that under the 1866 Act, a damage suit also could be brought against a suburban neighborhood swimming club for its refusal to admit an otherwise qualified black family. In the school desegregation cases, the legislative reapportionment rulings and criminal rights rulings, and others, the Warren Court overturned constitutional precedent. It often acted where Congress or the states could have legislated, but where these arms of government under majoritarian control had not acted. But the majoritarian branches of the federal government followed the Warren Court's essential moral leadership, and eventually the southern states also followed, even if the other branches and the states followed at a distance and then under the stress of nonviolent black pressures. Congress enacted civil rights legislation for the first time since the Civil War era, Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson fulfilling the oaths that they had taken at their inaugurations to uphold the Constitution, courageously employed United States Marshals and troops to enforce the desegregation decisions of the Supreme Court, or of lower federal courts which were carrying out the Warren Court's mandates. Civil rights laws, whether made by Congress or the Court, perhaps more than other kinds of laws, must depend for their ultimate fulfillment on the good faith of the majority of the people, white and black. The law, constitutional or statutory, in the school, reapportionment, and even the criminal areas, was dealing with ingrained patterns of human behavior involving millions of people in hundreds of communities far from Washington. The Supreme Court's decisions could never directly reach all of the people, and the laws passed by Congress could reach them only with painful slowness. Yet, the moral suasion initiated by the Warren Court spread like waves in every direction, and in some measure touched every man, woman, and child, white and black. Blacks' rights, legal and otherwise, were rolled forward, and whites' prejudices were rolled back from where they had been in 1953. Blacks, for the first time since the Civil War era, realistically became eligible for public office in the local, state, and national governments. Negroes became known more often as Afro-Americans, putting them theoretically on par with at least the Japanese Americans and other hyphenated Americans. In the entertainment world, Amos and Andy were out, and Bill Cosby was in. Blacks demanded and won from universities in the North special black study programs, and they began to rewrite American history as it concerned the Afro-American. It is tempting to conclude, then, that the Warren Court led a lasting revolution in America. But it was a revolution that always had to be seen in perspective, and that is not yet completed. By 1964, only about 1% of the 3 million black children in the 11 states of the Old South were in desegregated schools. By 1969, the figure was up only about 6%. School segregation in the cities of the North, which resulted from housing patterns that in turn reflected the white flight to the suburbs rather than racial separation by state law as had existed in the South, presented a question the nation and the court had not yet faced. Racial equality for blacks in housing and in employment opportunities also was largely unfulfilled. The new civil rights laws enacted by Congress had given the Justice Department the power to sue on behalf of blacks to improve housing and employment opportunities, but the department had exercised its discretion by filing suits not by the hundreds, but in quantities that could be termed tokenism, given the long history of racial inequality in America and the magnitude of the problem in the late 1960s. The revolution inaugurated by the Warren Court was, then, neither final nor complete and it could not be made so unless it was sustained by a continuation of moral leadership as enlightened as that which had been brought to the court by Earl Warren, and as courageous at least 
as that which had been brought to the presidency by Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. End of chapter 4. The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. A political chump. In Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, there are 257 who are Democrats. Only 177 are Republicans. In the Senate, there are 67 uh, Democrats. Only 33 are Republicans. The party that you bass controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Chapter 5 the Black Seat. If the Constitution and its Bill of Rights are read side by side with a history of the Negro in America, it becomes perfectly obvious. If the Constitution and its Bill of Rights are read side by side with a history of the Negro in America, it becomes perfectly obvious that the tortuous inconsistencies between the two are intolerable. When the Supreme Court ruled in 1954 that black boys and girls could no longer be prevented by state law from attending schools with white children, it hardly could have done otherwise. So glaring were the inconsistencies that the other two branches of the federal government, and, presumably, the majority of the American people which they represented, accepted the morality of the court's ruling, and then expanded on it with new civil rights acts. Yet there was some amount of opposition, not large perhaps, but vengeful, from the moment Chief Justice Warren, on May 17, 1954, announced the decision of the court in the school desegregation cases, and it remains questionable whether the majoritarian branches would have passed the new Civil Rights Acts if blacks had not reinforced their cause with sit-ins, freedom rides, and indeed even with riots. Decades of Negro history, written by a white majoritarian hand, would not be wiped out with a mere Supreme Court decision. To the contrary, the vengeful opposition would grow as the Warren Court's libertarianism expanded. America never has lacked opportunistic politicians who are willing and able to forego true leadership for a chance to forge a reactionary majority by putting latent angers and fears into words. In time, the growing opposition to the Warren Court would find its voice. Reaction to and defiance of the 1954 decision arose immediately in the South, White citizens' councils were organized to coordinate local opposition, and white academies were opened so that white children would not have to attend schools with blacks. Impeach Earl Warren placards sprouted throughout the South. In 1955, the year the Supreme Court handed down the second part of its school desegregation decision, three blacks were lynched in Mississippi, marking the first such murders in the nation since 1951. In 1956, more than a hundred members of the House and Senate in Washington 
issued the Southern Manifesto, which declared that the, quote, unwarranted decision of the Supreme Court now is bearing fruit, end quote. It ended with a promise to, quote, use all lawful means to bring about a reversal of this decision, which is contrary to the Constitution, end quote. Lyndon Johnson of Texas was one of only three Southern senators who refused to sign the manifesto. As the Warren Court's libertarianism manifested itself in the one-man, one-vote rulings, the criminal rights decisions, the rulings rejecting the loyalty oath mania of the McCarthy era, and in other areas of the law, the opposition spread outside the South. In 1958, at a meeting in Pasadena, California, 36 of the chief justices of the state Supreme Courts voted in favor of a resolution that was highly critical of the Warren Court. Many bills were introduced in Congress to curb the Court's powers. For example, Senator William E. Jenner, Republican of Indiana, sponsored a bill that would have forbidden the Supreme Court to review any cases involving congressional committees, federal employee security rules, state laws on subversion, local school board regulations on subversion, and state requirements for admission to the bar. Police and prosecutors in various parts of the nation joined in attacking the Warren Court for allegedly hampering their efforts to capture and convict those guilty of crimes. Other measures were introduced in Congress to mitigate the effects of the Court's one-man, one-vote and its criminal rights decisions. But the Warren Court remained steadfast, and Congress and the White House fended off the attacks on the Court, for as long as Earl Warren remained Chief Justice and the White House was occupied by Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. The Court's decisions on issues other than school desegregation often were less than unanimous, and the lack of unanimity encouraged Congress to enact several measures that were intended to undo, in part, some of the Court's criminal rights decisions. But the Eisenhower administration opposed the Jenner Bill in 1958, and this and subsequent attempts to seriously undermine the Warren Court's libertarianism were not successful. Until 1968, the Court, Congress, and the White House were moving together, particularly toward the enlargement of rights and privileges of blacks. Since 1968, the moral leadership of the Court has been placed in jeopardy, and the momentum which carried civil rights forward in Congress and the White House has been slowed, if not lost, altogether. The pattern of black progress consisting of court actions and nonviolent demonstrations, which were followed by new civil rights legislation, has been broken. Violence often has taken the place of nonviolence, and repressive laws have taken the place of legislative advance. It is impossible to say precisely when opposition to the Warren Court began to overtake reluctant acceptance of the Court's leadership, but certainly there were signs of growing opposition in 1967 when President Johnson, who had named Abe Fortas to the Court in 1965, came upon his second opportunity to nominate an associate justice. Inasmuch as impeachment of a justice and amendment of the Constitution both are, by intention of the Founding Fathers, terribly laborious methods of seeking political revenge against the Supreme Court, the President's nomination of new members of the Court and the tone of Senate confirmation proceedings ordinarily are the most practical means of judging whether the revenge seekers are gaining or losing ground. Perhaps the first real test of the majoritarian branch's feelings toward the Warren Court came in 1959 when President Eisenhower nominated Potter Stewart. Eisenhower had given Stewart a recess appointment in 1958. Stewart's support of the Warren Court's racial desegregation decisions was well known, and the Senate delayed from January 17th until May 5th before it voted on his nomination. He was confirmed by a roll call vote of 70 to 17. All of the 17 dissenters were Southern Democrats. The next nominations were those of Byron White 
and Arthur Goldberg, both made by President Kennedy in 1962. They were confirmed by voice vote without a roll call. President Johnson's nomination of Abe Fortas in 1965 was also confirmed by voice vote. There were, in the Senate's consideration of each of these nominations, political considerations unrelated to the Warren Court, but the Court's libertarianism also was involved in each of the confirmation proceedings because Southern senators were dedicated to a reversal of the Warren Court's decisions by, quote, all lawful means, end quote. The means certainly included opposition to confirmation of new liberal justices, but the South's time to rise again had not yet arrived. The majority of senators still were willing to move civil rights forward in Congress and on the court. In part because President Johnson personally believed in racial equality, he seems never to have fully recognized fully the depth of Southern resentment in Congress against the Warren Court, or the strength of Southern determination to overturn the court's decisions, given the opportunity. He nominated liberal thinkers to the court, but it was not their libertarianism that recommended them to Johnson. His approach to Supreme Court vacancies had little to do with ideology, and much to do with the peculiarities of Lyndon Johnson. He succeeded in placing two of his nominees on the court, but neither of the vacancies he filled came to the White House unanticipated. Normally, court vacancies cannot be well anticipated because the Constitution confers on justices lifetime tenure, and the independence tenure breeds. Consequently, vacancies often in history have been created by unexpected death or illness, and rarely have they come about because of a resignation at a president's wish. But Johnson was not a patient man, willing to wait for ordinary vacancies. He tried to make his opportunities, and in so doing forged a second link in the chain which unknowingly led to the battle for control of the court. As Johnson quote-unquote promoted Justice Goldberg to the United Nations, so did he move other men as on a great chessboard. Johnson, of course, had more reason than most presidents to move men, although the reason did not extend to the Supreme Court. It extended only to the White House staff and the cabinet. Johnson had inherited the administration of his predecessor. For a variety of personal and political reasons, he wanted and needed men of his choice, but continuity in public opinion precluded hasty changes immediately following the Kennedy assassination. So the Kennedy cabinet remained almost intact through the remainder of the term to which Kennedy had been elected in 1960, although the White House staff began to change more quickly when Johnson became president. After Johnson, on November 3, 1964, was elected president in his own right, the cabinet began to change, and the only Kennedy man who remained with Johnson through January 1969 was Secretary of State Dean Rusk, a faithful defender of Johnson's Vietnam policies. The one member of John Kennedy's cabinet who did not stay with Johnson even through the November 1964 election was Robert F. Kennedy, the late president's attorney general and brother. Robert Kennedy resigned on September 3, 1964, to run as the Democratic candidate for United States Senator from the state of New York. It might have been politically wise for Johnson to have kept Kennedy in the cabinet, for Kennedy's election to the Senate in November was the beginning of a new Kennedy presidential campaign machine, which could be steered with great skill and enthusiasm to run down Johnson in 1968. But Johnson could not control Kennedy, and there were great gulfs of emotion and personality that separated the two. Also, there was a certain gain for the president in Kennedy's departure from the Justice Department. The Department of Justice is politically the most sensitive of the great departments of the executive branch, and therefore the personal trustworthiness of the Attorney General is most important to the President. The Department always has been important because it controls litigation before the Supreme Court, to which all government departments and agencies are parties. But, 
In recent years, the Justice Department has acquired an additional importance as a focal point of administration policy on contemporarily crucial political issues, including civil rights, criminal rights, and law and order. This added role stemmed in part from decisions of the Warren Court and the presidential burden of enforcing those decisions, but it also stemmed from enactment of the new Civil Rights Acts since 1957. The department under those acts was charged with a central role in enforcing the voting, educational, housing, and job rights of black citizens. While other departments which administer federal grant programs do not have large influence over policy matters because Congress fixes the amount of the spending, the Justice Department has great discretion in deciding the quantity and quality of civil rights lawsuits it will file. It thus has great influence over policy inasmuch as it exercises control over the pace of racial desegregation in education, housing, and employment. Another consideration, which is not necessarily last in the order of reasons why a president needs a strong and loyal attorney general, is the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover was named director of the FBI in 1924, when Calvin Coolidge was in the White House and the Bureau was small, inept, and politically controlled. Four decades and seven presidents later, Hoover still was director, even though he was not entitled by the Constitution to lifetime tenure, and his appointment had not been subject to Senate confirmation. His truly remarkable staying power was due largely to his administrative and public relations abilities, and to the total dedication of this wifeless, childless man to the FBI. Under Hoover's direction, and his alone, the Bureau grew by the late 1960s into an efficient, non-uniformed national police, with a workforce of 20,000 which operates the nation's largest computerized crime information network and maintains the nation's most complete police files on hundreds of thousands of individuals. Hoover's control of this highly effective and largely secretive police apparatus became in turn an element of his staying power, and the unique kind of independence he acquired rested also on his close association with the most senior and powerful conservatives in the Senate and the House. Hoover's independence thus was a problem to Johnson, as it had been to other presidents. No president, presumably, wanted to take personal control of the FBI, but neither could he risk that this massive police apparatus would be run out of his control entirely. Consequently, there often were unfruitful tensions between the bureau director and the attorney general, and especially between Hoover and Robert Kennedy. For these various reasons, the role of attorney general has become very important to presidential policies and politics, displacing the position in the cabinet once held by the postmaster general, when the post office department offered more patronage jobs than any other department. In earlier administrations, the president's campaign manager frequently chose to become postmaster general, but Robert Kennedy, who had been his brother's campaign manager, became attorney general, and a few years later, Richard Nixon's campaign manager, John Mitchell, similarly chose the post. When Robert Kennedy in September 1964 handed in his resignation, President Johnson wanted Abe Fortas to become his attorney general. Inasmuch as the election was two months off, and Johnson had no desire unnecessarily to offend liberal voters who esteemed the Kennedy name, Fortas's appointment presumably would not have been made public until after the election. But Fortas declined the position, and therefore Johnson, on the day after Kennedy's departure, promoted a Kennedy man, he was Nicholas Katzenbach, a member of the original Kennedy team. Katzenbach was a product of Phillips Exeter Academy, Princeton University, and Yale Law School, and had served Robert Kennedy well at Oxford, Mississippi, and elsewhere. In November, Johnson soundly defeated Republican candidate Barry Goldwater, 
Robert Kennedy won his bid for a seat in the Senate. A few days after Johnson was sworn in on a freezing January 20th, 1965, the president elevated to sit at Kotzenbach's right hand as deputy attorney general a Texan named Ramsey Clark, a tall, skinny, 37-year-old lawyer whom Johnson had known since Ramsey was a boy. The rise of Ramsey Clark is an unusual Washington story in various respects, the most significant being that, in time, he and Dean Rusk and a small number of other men were the very few who successfully bridged the administrations of John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Clark served both of these dissimilar Democratic presidents, but as a Texan, he did not really belong to Kennedy, and as a young, consummate liberal, he did not really belong to Johnson. Clark's link to Johnson was familial, and his kinship with the Kennedys was intellectual and emotional. The latter proved stronger. Johnson had known young Ramsey Clark as the son of Tom Clark, a tall Texas lawyer who, like Johnson, had come to Washington in the 1930s during the Roosevelt administration. Tom Clark and Johnson both had been close to Representative Sam Rayburn of Texas, who in the 1940s became the powerful and famous Speaker of the House. In 1937, the year Johnson was first elected to the House, Tom Clark went to work at the Justice Department. Clark's professional accomplishments and political associations with Rayburn, Johnson, and other Democratic Party leaders led to successively higher positions in the department and finally to his appointment by President Truman as Attorney General. In 1949, Truman nominated Thomas Campbell Clark, then only 49 years old, to be a member of the Supreme Court. The nomination initially aroused considerable liberal opposition in the Senate, where it was thought that Clark was anti-labor and anti-Negro. Footnote. The initial opposition of Senate liberals to Clark's confirmation apparently stemmed more from his Texas background than from his actions as Attorney General. However, as Truman's Attorney General, Clark aroused liberal suspicions because of his defense of government loyalty programs and other anti-communist activities. His nomination to the Supreme Court was confirmed in the Senate by a vote of 73 to 8. End of footnote. But with the support of then-Senator Lyndon Johnson, Clark was confirmed and, in time, still preferring to be known simply as Tom Clark and still wearing bow ties, he became a member of the Warren Court's liberal majority, except on certain issues, including government loyalty and internal security programs. So Ramsey, although born in Dallas, grew up mainly in Washington, and mostly in the Justice Department. He went back home to the University of Texas for a bachelor's degree, but then strayed. He went to the University of Chicago, where, in 1950, he received a master's degree in American history and a law degree. He might have gone into teaching and done some writing, but he instead went back to Dallas and practiced law until John Kennedy won the presidency. In 1961, Ramsey Clark, at the age of 34, came back to Washington as one of Robert Kennedy's half-dozen assistant attorney generals. But he was in charge of the Justice Department's land division, a job far removed from the important functions of the department. Clark did a respectable job in the Lance Division and became a liberal admirer of the Kennedy style, but he did not belong to the Kennedy's inner circle and was unknown to the general public. He was not rescued from the obscurity of the Lance Division until Johnson named him deputy to Katzenbach. Nicholas Katzenbach's stay as Attorney General was not to be for long. On October 3, 1966, President Johnson moved Katzenbach out of the cabinet and into the statement department as undersecretary. Footnote. Katzenbach remained as undersecretary of state through the end of the Johnson administration in January 1969. End footnote. On the same day, Johnson named Ramsey Clark acting attorney general. 
As Washington puzzled over Katzenbach's promotion, it began after a time to wonder also why President Johnson for weeks and then months kept Ramsey Clark in the acting capacity at the Justice Department. The president told no one, not even Ramsey Clark. But finally, on the last day of February 1967, Johnson informed the White House press corps of his intention to nominate Clark to be attorney general. The Senate confirmed Clark forthwith, and on March 10th, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson, Justice and Mrs. Clark, Chief Justice Warren, Director Hoover, and well-wishers in large numbers from the administration and Congress, gathered in the Great Hall at the Justice Department for the occasion of Clark's swearing-in. The President was paying a special compliment to the Clarks, father and son, by coming to the Justice Department instead of having them come to the White House. There in the Great Hall, a high-ceilinged mausoleum of marbled walls and silvered statuary, whose architecture seemed the inspiration of the WPA, Texas accents were as numerous as at the barbecue on the LBJ Ranch. Almost everyone on the dais was embracing almost everyone else. When Hail to the Chief finally stopped echoing through the marble walls, the President rose and addressed the assembled crowd with words which must have embarrassed the new Attorney General. Quote, I remember him when he was serving his apprenticeship in the Justice Department as a boy in knee pants, Johnson declared benignly. His father, Attorney General Tom Clark, was soliciting suggestions on morale and how to improve the efficiency of the department to bring all of the different bureaus up to the high standards of efficiency to which Mr. Hoover had brought to the FBI. Even then, Ramsey made his contribution. When they opened the box and looked at the suggestions, one of them was a rather unusual suggestion. Tom Clark asked Hoover to find out who had made the suggestion, and the Attorney General quit wearing those bright bow ties. Hoover replied, It was your son. End quote. The story, true or not, was a more fitting introduction to the Attorney Generalship of Ramsey Clark than Lyndon Johnson may have realized. If J. Edgar Hoover priced unwelcomely into the affairs of Ramsey Clark as a boy, the FBI director got on even less well with Ramsey Clark as a man. As Attorney General, Clark had a number of run-ins with Director Hoover. After Clark left office, he wrote a book in which he accused Hoover of being self-centered, and Hoover replied by calling Clark a quote-unquote jellyfish. Footnote. In Crime of America, 1970, Clark made only a brief reference to Hoover, page 82, but it was that reference which in large part made the book newsworthy. Hoover replied by granting a rare interview with a reporter, Ken W. Clausen of the Washington Post. November 17, 1970, pages A1, A7, and footnote. J. Edgar Hoover, Lyndon Johnson, and Tom Clark were of the same political generation, and they understood one another well enough to tolerate one another. Ramsey Clark, as it turned out, was of another generation. But on this, Clark's swearing-in day, even the director smiled. Having moved Nicholas Katzenbach out and Ramsey Clark up, President Johnson went on to the next logical move in his political game. When Johnson, on February 28, 1967, first told the White House press corps of his intentions to nominate Ramsey Clark as a full-fledged attorney general, reporters had asked whether the appointment would, quote, present any problem, unquote, for Justice Tom Clark. Johnson's reply was, quote, it is a problem for his father. I haven't discussed it with his father or with his son, end quote. If the president did not discuss his intentions of nominating Ramsey with Tom Clark, it was because men such as Lyndon Johnson and Tom Clark had known one another for so long that each can make his move sure of the response of the other. Johnson conceded to the White House reporters that the Ramsey-Clark nomination would present, quote-unquote, a problem for the justice, 
and certainly the President knew specifically that Tom Clark could not remain on the Supreme Court. Because the Justice Department frequently is a party to cases before the court, and the Attorney General personally may argue a few of the most important of such cases, Justice Clark could not remain without appearing or risking the appearance of deciding cases in favor of the position argued by his son. Alternatively, the elder Clark theoretically could have declined to participate in any cases to which the Justice Department was a party, but that course would have unduly burdened the other members of the court. The only course for Justice Clark was to retire, as he and the President well knew. Indeed, Tom Clark was quite prepared to retire. On February 28th, the very day Johnson made his announcement at the White House, Justice Clark issued a statement at the Supreme Court announcing his intention to retire. Now 67 years old and on the court for 17 years, Tom Clark was perfectly willing to leave so that his son might become Attorney General. He said in his statement, quote, Mrs. Clark and I are filled with both pride and joy over Ramsey's nomination by the President. We deeply appreciate the high confidence that the President has placed in him, end quote. The statement disclosed that, back on October 3rd, 1966, the day Nicholas Katzenbach moved out and Ramsey became acting Attorney General, Clark had notified Chief Justice Warren privately that, quote, in the event Ramsey becomes the Attorney General, it is my intention to retire from the court, end quote. Footnote. The statement was released February 28, 1967, by Justice Clark through the Supreme Court's press officer. End footnote. Justice Clark's retirement became effective on June 12, 1967, following the close of the court's term, and Johnson thus acquired his second opportunity to nominate a member of the court. The second vacancy, unlike the first, was not delivered to the White House by unassisted fate. Whether Johnson, in his private mind, intended to Texas double play, gaining the opportunity to name Ramsey Clark as Attorney General and also to name another Texas friend to the Supreme Court, is not known. Certainly Johnson, in moving Katzenbach to the State Department, was motivated at least in part by the desire to nominate as acting Attorney General, the son of his friend of long standing, Tom Clark. Ramsey Clark, to Johnson still that quote-unquote boy in knee pants, was as much a son as Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson ever had. It seems not unlikely that the president similarly had private plans to nominate a Texas crony to fill the vacancy on the court. Informed speculation in Washington was that Johnson probably would nominate either Homer Thornberry, a personal and political friend of many years from Austin, Texas, or Leon Jaworski, a Houston lawyer whom Johnson had known for many years and who, like Abe Fortas, had risen to high position in the legal profession. Footnote. Although speculation in the press concerning Justice Clark's successor centered on Jaworski, Thornberry, and a few other white lawyers, it was also mentioned that Johnson had the interest in naming the first Negro as well as the first woman to the Supreme Court. See, for instance, the New York Times, March 1, 1967, page 1, article headed Ramsey Clark nominated to be Attorney General and father to quit high court, and footnote. But events and Ramsey Clark persuaded the president to defer his wishes to name a second personal choice to the Supreme Court. In the spring of 1967, America was in turmoil, and President Johnson faced mounting difficulties domestically and in Vietnam. The willingness of the great majority of Southern blacks to move forward nonviolently seemed to be wearing thin. Racial violence had erupted with growing intensity in each of the past three summers. In the summer of 1964, the incidents of white and black violence were confined largely to cities in the South. Thereafter, they spread to the North and West in a perplexingly new pattern. The children and grandchildren of Negroes who had migrated from the South rioted in inner-city ghettos and public housing projects where they lived. 
Such young blacks, more militant than Negroes who had remained in the South, in the summer of 1965 led massive riots in the Watts section of Los Angeles. The Watts violence left 35 persons dead, 883 injured, and more than 3,500 under arrest. In the summer of 1966, racial violence flared in the Huff section of Cleveland, in Chicago, and in more than 40 additional cities. There were also some deaths, and scores of injuries and arrests. But more bloodshed was avoided because governments, state and federal, were learning to quickly deploy thousands of troops against such black uprisings. Still, there seemed no logical pattern to the violence. It was unplanned, almost always erupting in overhead. It was unplanned, almost always erupting in overheated, crowded streets after a run-in between local police and young blacks. In the spring of 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. warned at a press conference in New York that at least ten cities could, quote, explode in racial violence, end quote. In the days and weeks that followed, blacks rioted in Nashville, Louisville, Cleveland, and a number of other cities, and in Montgomery, Alabama, a bomb exploded near the home of a U.S. District Court judge who was a member of a three-judge panel which had ordered the desegregation of Alabama's public schools by the next fall. Also in that spring of 1967, black protest appeared from Washington to be taking another new and dangerous turn. Johnson, deeply troubled by campus disorders and rising white opposition to his escalation of the war in Vietnam, saw Dr. King threatening to bring together the civil rights and the anti-war movements. King in April had urged American youths, white or black, to boycott the war by declaring themselves conscientious objectors. He had drawn parallels between the sending of American youths to Vietnam and the German concentration camps of World War II, and he'd alleged that, quote, twice as many Negroes as whites are in combat, end quote, in Vietnam. Later in April, King led an anti-war demonstration in New York in which more than 100,000 persons marched from Central Park to the United Nations headquarters. It was those events and the quote-unquote strong recommendation of Attorney General Ramsey Clark that led President Johnson to nominate his Tom Clark's replacement the first black member of the Supreme Court in American history. On June 13th, the day following Justice Clark's retirement, Johnson nominated Thurgood Marshall. With Marshall at his side in the White House Rose Garden, the president said that Marshall, quote, He's best qualified uh, by training and by very valuable service uh, to the country, end quote, to sit on the Supreme Court. Quote, I believe it's the right thing to do, the right time to do it, the right man in the right place, end quote, Johnson added. It was the right thing to do, even though the time was late. Whether Thurgood Marshall was the right man is a question that will be debated in history. The rise in Negro militancy brought the first black seat in history on the Supreme Court. As the reawakening of blacks to all of their civil rights a century after the Civil War brought for them the Civil Rights Acts of the New Era. The selection of Thurgood Marshall to fill the seat was, for white liberals in Washington, an appropriate and acceptable symbolic act. This election was not equally appropriate and acceptable to blacks in the spring of 1967. Thurgood Marshall, 58 years old when Johnson nominated him to the Supreme Court, had been born in Baltimore and received his law degree from Howard University, a predominantly black school in Washington. He was a member of the class of 1933 at Howard, and in the years following he had played a large and important role in the beginnings of black reawakening. After graduation, like the relatively few other educated young Negroes of his generation, Marshall joined the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People without even thinking of direct confrontation. 
He did legal work for the NAACP branch in Baltimore, and then moved to New York, where in 1938 he became chief legal officer of the NAACP and helped to found the Legal Defense and Education Fund as a separate litigation arm of the association. For nearly a quarter of a century, he initiated and argued civil rights cases, 32 of them in the Supreme Court. He argued against the separate but equal doctrine before the Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education, and the other school desegregation cases the Warren Court decided in 1954 and 1955. There, and in a number of other voting, school, and public accommodation cases, he was a participant in arguments that led to the Warren Court's momentous civil rights decisions. But it was not until a new generation of civil rights leaders emerged in the South that Thurgood Marshall was elevated from advocate to judge. As Dr. King of the new generation led black people into the streets and went to jail, Marshall rose ever higher in the councils of government. In 1961, the year that a newer black organization, the Congress of Racial Equality, began to sponsor freedom rides across the South, President Kennedy named Marshall to the U.S. Second Court of Appeals in New York. In 1965, the year of the bloody riots in the Watts section of Los Angeles, President Johnson brought Marshall back to Washington to become Solicitor General, the third-ranking position in the Justice Department. And in June 1967, as the racial violence Dr. King predicted was erupting in American cities, Johnson nominated Marshall to be a member of the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall's very substantial contributions to civil rights progress as an advocate prior to 1961 are not to be discounted. Nor is the good faith of Lyndon Johnson and Ramsey Clark in urging his appointment to the Supreme Court to be impugned. Yet their good faith illustrated the difficulty that even well-meaning white liberals encounter in attempting to see America as blacks see her. And, as a result, there was deep, deep irony in the nomination and confirmation of Thurgood Marshall to be the first black member of the Supreme Court. He was nominated and confirmed because he had accumulated what Richard Nixon might have called an acceptable track record. At the time when racial violence was sweeping the nation, Marshall was picked to fill the first black seat on the court precisely because he was a symbol of gradualism and nonviolence. Quote, no black man can lay just claim to the title of black leader until he has gone through the proper ritual and been appointed by white folk. End quote. Marshall in 1967 was not a black leader among the masses of young blacks. To whites and blacks, he stood for order and for law. And, to the extent that law and order was becoming a code word for rising white opposition to rising black militancy and violence, his nomination and confirmation carried a brooding implication, intended or not, by his white supporters. There had been overt white racial opposition in 1961, when Marshall was first nominated for federal office. President Kennedy nominated a total of five blacks to judgeships, including Marshall's nomination to the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York. The Senate took no action, so Kennedy gave Marshall a recess appointment and resubmitted the nomination as Congress reconvened on January 15, 1962. The Senate Judiciary Committee, under the leadership of senior Southern Democrats, did not begin hearings until May 1st, and it did not vote out the nomination until September 7th, when the threat of a discharge petition became serious. The committee recommended confirmation by a vote of 11 to 4, and on September 11th, the Senate confirmed Marshall by a vote of 44 to 16. In 1965, when President Johnson nominated Marshall to be Solicitor General, he was confirmed without delay or difficulty. Clearly, whatever fears the Senate initially harbored that Marshall, once in high federal office, would be a civil rights zealot, were satisfactorily answered in 1967. Marshall had accumulated his track record. 
when the Senate Judiciary Committee in July took up his nomination to succeed Tom Clark on the Supreme Court, Marshall's race was not an overt issue. No organized black support appeared for him, and no organized white opposition appeared against him. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People did not testify in favor of the nomination, for instance, and no white citizens' council testified against it. The only senator who raised questions concerning racial matters was Strom Thurmond, Republican of South Carolina. Thurmond posed a seemingly endless series of questions intended to show that the Warren Court was not interpreting the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as their framers intended. He asked Marshall, for example, quote, What constitutional difficulties did Representative John Bingham of Ohio see, or what difficulties do you see, in Congressional enforcement of the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, Section 2, through the Necessary and Proper Clause of Article 1, Section 8, end quote. To this and most of Thurman's other questions, Marshall replied, quote, I don't understand the question, end quote, and inasmuch as no one else in the hearing room understood either, the senator from South Carolina scored no points against the nominee. But, more significantly, Southern Democrats on the Judiciary Committee questioned Marshall for five days about the criticisms of the Warren Court that had been raised in 1958 by the 36 state chief justices and about the Warren Court's decisions concerning the rights of the criminally accused and the powers of the police. Marshall proved himself a skillful witness by refusing to tell the Southerners how he would vote as a member of the Supreme Court in future cases concerning criminal rights. But, in these times of black rioting and violence, which had brought Thurgood Marshall before the Judiciary Committee, the Southerners succeeded in souring the implication that black militancy was somehow connected to the Warren Court's decisions upholding the constitutional rights of alleged criminals. The committee approved the nomination, 11-5, to 5, and the Senate on August 30th confirmed Marshall by a vote of 69-11, to 11, after six hours of uneventful floor debate. Marshall took his seat when the court opened its new term on Monday, October 2, 1967, as President Johnson quietly sat in the court's chamber to watch the swearing-in. Marshall's nomination and confirmation were evidence, then, that in 1967 political opposition to the Warren Court was rising, but the White House and a majority of the members of the Senate remained willing, under pressure of rising black militancy, to advance further the cause of racial equality. The number of votes cast against confirmation was fewer than those recorded in 1959 against confirmation of Potter Stewart, the last Supreme Court nominee whose confirmation was decided by roll-call vote. The 11 votes against Thurgood Marshall were those of 10 Southern Democrats, and the 11th by a renegade conservative Northern Democrat, Robert C. Byrd of West Virginia. Four Southern, De Four Southern Republicans voted for confirmation of Marshall. They were Senators John Sherman Cooper and Thruston B. Morton of Kentucky, Howard H. Baker Jr. of Tennessee, and John G. Tower of Texas. The total membership of the Senate at the time consisted of 99 white members and one black, Edward W. Brooke, Republican of Massachusetts, who was elected in 1966, and the first black to serve in the United States Senate since the Reconstruction era. Marshall's nomination and confirmation came at a time when Congress still was debating new civil rights legislation. The policy of the White House still was to explain and deal with black race riots, not in terms of criminal behavior, but rather in terms of the social causes of Negro unrest. And, so far as the Supreme Court was concerned, the arrival of Marshall was neither intended nor expected to alter Warren Court doctrines. Yet the arrival of this first black man to sit on the court marked the beginning of the end of white and black willingness to move forward 
in the court, Congress, and the White House toward racial equality through nonviolent constitutional means. Marshall was not a cause of the end of racial accommodation under law. He was a symbol. For many whites, the symbolism was acceptable, and indeed necessary. Marshall was not a representative of the increasingly insistent and strident brand of nonviolence preached by Martin Luther King Jr. Marshall was a legalist, King a moralist. After he took his seat on the court, Marshall on various occasions affirmed the faith that whites had had in his track record. He traveled to Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire, to discuss black militancy and the court with students there, and declared, quote, Negroes are nonviolent people, and they always have been, and always will be, end quote. Asked by a curious student about his thoughts concerning younger black leadership in general, and Eldridge Cleaver in particular, Marshall asserted, quote, Cleaver is a refugee from justice. I think his idea of a government is taking a carbine and joining others in shooting at police. That's not the way to protest, end quote. While many blacks in the civil rights movement and young whites in the anti-war movement were marching in protest against Lyndon Johnson, to Marshall, the president was, quote, the greatest man I've ever known in my life, end quote. For many blacks, the symbolism was unacceptable and perhaps offensive. In July, as Marshall sat before the Judiciary Committee talking not about civil rights but about law and order, racial riots still more violent than in previous years broke out. In Detroit, thousands of blacks rioted, burned, and looted. Police, National Guardsmen, and Army paratroopers moved in against them, and by the time the violence ended, 43 persons, 33 black and 10 white, were dead. Riots in Newark, New Jersey, in the same month, left 23 dead, 21 of them black, and 2 of them white. When the next springtime came, and Mr. Justice Marshall was completing his first term on the court, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Blacks rioted in Washington and throughout the nation, and Congress enacted its last major civil rights act, and for the first time made it a federal crime to incite riot. And also, for the first time, the demand for quote-unquote law and order was heard above the cry for racial equality. End of chapter 5 Yes? Judge Thurgood Marshall in New York on 90. I understand. Okay. Thank you, Miss Willie. Yes, sir. Judge, how are you? I have a rather big problem that uh, I want to talk to you about, right? I want you to give it some, some real thought because it's. Uh, something that I have thought about for weeks and I, I think it uh, we can't think of how it affects us personally we've got to think about the world and our country and our government and then ourselves are way down at the bottom of the list I want you to be my solicitor general now you lose a lot lose security and you you lose uh, uh, the freedom that you like and you lose the philosophizing that you do and I'm familiar with all those things uh, well uh, you won't lose any and 
I want you to do it for two or three reasons. One, I want the top lawyer in the United States represent me for the Supreme Court to be a Negro and to be a damn good lawyer that's done it before. That's uh, So you have those peculiar qualifications. Number two, uh, I think it will do a lot for our image uh, abroad and, and uh, at home, too, that, uh, that this is the man that uh, the whole government has to look to to decide whether it prosecutes the case or whether it goes up with the case or whether it doesn't and so on and so forth. Number three, I want you to have uh, the experience and be in the picture. I'm not discussing anything else, and I don't want to make any other commitments. I don't want to imply or bribe or mislead you. But I want you to have the training and experience of being there day after day for the next few weeks anyway, or maybe the next few months if you could do it. Now, I've talked to Ramsey Clark, whose father is on the Supreme Court, and both of them have a high regard for you. I've talked to the Attorney General, uh, and they catch back. I've talked to you, and I haven't talked to anybody else. Uh, I don't want to talk to anybody else. Uh, nobody will ever know I talk to you. If you decide that you can do it, uh, I think you ought to do it for, 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 for the people of the world. I just think it will be, uh, uh, you've got a great job, you've got lots of security, but I don't think you'll lose any of this. And, uh, uh, after you do it a while, if there's not something better, which I would hope there would be, uh, that you would uh, be more amenable to, uh, there'll be uh, there'll be security for you because I'm going to be here for quite a while. And, and, but I want to do this job that Lincoln started, and I want to do it the right way. Yes, yes, you can have all the time you want. And you think it over, and you evaluate it, and... Uh, this is a non-political job. It uh, it just determines what goes for that court, and then you present it uh, at least all you want to, and then have other people. Archie Cox will be going back to Harvard. He could stay. I could ask him to stay. But I want this man to... Uh, 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 I think you could see what I'm looking at, and uh, I want to be the first president that, uh, that really uh, goes all but I don't want anybody to be able to clip me from behind. I want to do it on merit. I want to do it without regard to politics. I want to do it without any regard to votes because I never, I don't want any votes. I'm not looking for votes. I've had the votes. I had all the votes when I needed them. I had 15 million, and, and all I want to do is serve my term and do it well. But uh, I, I also want to do something else. I want to, I want to leave my mark, and I want to see that the justice is done. And you can be a symbol there that uh, you can't ever be where you are. Well, it's got to be. It's got to be in you. Any day or two, you come down while you just get on the plane and come down here and uh, let my people know. Just call uh, Jack Valenti here at the White House and we'll, uh, we'll uh, make the appropriate arrangement. Well, I expect to be better uh, be uh, better uh, Monday or Tuesday. I'm going to be home on Friday. I'm going home Friday uh, afternoon. 
Uh, I'll be here this this Wednesday. I'll be here Thursday and Friday, but I'll leave after lunch. Then I'll be there until probably Monday afternoon. I'll be back here Tuesday. What about Tuesday? We'll just uh, you just forget this and uh, uh, let me uh, let me talk to you about it in detail and we'll work it out and uh, uh, you don't know uh, I, I've thought about it for weeks and I I just well you can because you live such a life and they've gone over you with a fine tooth comb and they could never. Uh, they could never uh, use anything about you to thwart us, and we're on our way now, and we, we, we're going to move. All right. That'll be fine. Do you have any idea what time you'd like to meet? What about 11 o'clock morning? Thank you. Chapter 6 of God Save This Honorable Court the Supreme Court Crisis. I'm Mike Overby, and this is an Amicus Lectio special for Ipse Dixit's Lex Phonographica. If you'd like your scholarship read on this podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Amicus Lectio, or at Lethargilistic. God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis, by Louis M. Kohlmeyer, Jr. Chapter 6. The Perils of Cronyism. A month after the President had sat in the Supreme Court chamber, witnessing the swearing-in of Thurgood Marshall with hope that this historic appointment would help to calm black turmoil in the nation, Johnson met at the White House with some of his political friends and advisors to talk for the first time about strategy in the 1968 election campaign. There was no intended relationship between the two events, yet there was a connection between the President's hopes that lay behind the Marshall appointment and his upcoming campaign for re-election. The nomination had had no perceptible effects on black militants, and Martin Luther King Jr., at the 10th Annual Convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta, had called for a continuation of racial protest through the mounting of a campaign of civil disobedience in northern cities. King, at the same convention, had urged a repudiation of the war through the election of a peace candidate in the 1968 presidential election. Nothing was firmly decided at the initial strategy meeting held in November 1967, and subsequent White House staff decisions in the weeks that followed produced no definitive campaign plans. Johnson seemed indecisive, exhausted, and dispirited. Liberal opposition to his Vietnam policy was growing more vehement in Congress with each escalation of the war. Anti-war militancy was growing on college campuses, in October, some 35,000 demonstrators, most of them young whites, had marched on the Pentagon and clashed with troops and police. Now King was planning to join whites and blacks in a united political front against the president. Apparent also was the growing opposition to Johnson's right. The president and his young attorney general sensed the rising reaction of older, more affluent white citizens and conservative members of Congress against the black militants, the campus radicals, and the tenor of the times that seemed to have spawned a plague of street crimes and lawlessness throughout the country. But Johnson's and Clark's response to the fear and anger of more conservative, middle-class, and suburban Americans often appeared to be confused and contradictory. Johnson, for instance, early in 1967, proposed to Congress a crime control bill under which the federal government, among other things, would make available hundreds of millions of dollars to strengthen state and local law enforcement. Congress enacted the legislation as the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. 
But Clark refused to use the new authority Congress provided to utilize wiretaps and electronic devices under court warrants as crime-fighting tools. Quote, Nothing so mocks privacy as the wiretap and electronic surveillance, Clark declared. They are incompatible with a free society. End quote. His position was applauded by liberals and condemned by conservatives. Johnson thus was caught in a hailstorm of criticism that came from all sides. The popularity polls he carried around in his pocket showed sharp declines. A Lewis-Harris poll in November reported that, if the elections were held then, he would be defeated by any one of six Republican presidential possibilities. As winter came on, the abuse became more personal. Johnson was the target of threats and obscenities. Crude caricatures of him were drawn in books, and in a play that opened in New York, he was portrayed as an inarticulate country clod who had risen to power not by legislative skill, but by wheeling and dealing, and worse. Johnson's sinking popularity and his apparent confusion and indecisiveness made the 1968 presidential election ever more attractive to all sorts of presidential possibilities, Republican and Democratic. Senator Eugene McCarthy announced at a press conference in Washington on the last day of November that he intended to oppose Johnson for the Democratic nomination. McCarthy made the announcement after he was assured that Robert Kennedy would not run against Johnson. McCarthy's liberal young followers promptly began to prepare for the primary election in New Hampshire, the earliest of the state primaries which have become so important to all presidential aspirants as gauges of popular appeal. Early in February, Richard Nixon flew into New Hampshire to open his campaign for the Republican nomination for president. The results of the primary showed that Johnson was in deep trouble indeed. On March 12, Nixon, as expected, won the Republican popularity race in New Hampshire, and among the Democrats, McCarthy did vastly better against President Johnson than had been expected. Johnson, at the White House in Washington, was informed that he had received only 230 votes more than the hitherto almost unknown senator from Minnesota. So impressive was Gene McCarthy's anti-war vote that, four days after the New Hampshire primary, Senator Robert Kennedy changed his mind and decided that he would enter the race against Johnson for the Democratic presidential nomination. Kennedy's abrupt seizure of opportunity embittered Johnson perhaps even more than McCarthy. The president, since that initial campaign strategy meeting in November, had been immersed in the dispatch of more American troops to Vietnam to meet the Tet Offensive, which the North Vietnamese opened in late January. In the ensuing days, conflict in South Vietnam extended even into the United States Embassy there, and liberal opinion in this country grew ever more hostile to the war. In early March, Johnson was faced not only with the results of the New Hampshire primary, but also with a request from General William Westmoreland, his commander in Vietnam, for 206,000 additional troops. In Washington, the rapid buildup of the political campaigns of 1968 was being watched with intense interest not only in the White House and the Capitol, but also at the Supreme Court. One observer was Mr. Justice Fortas. More than that, however, Fortas was a participant, if not in the political discussions at the White House concerning Johnson's re-election chances, then in the conference concerning Vietnam policy, which patently would be one of the two dominant political issues of the 1968 election. Notwithstanding the separation of powers doctrine, Fortas, after he became a member of the Supreme Court in 1965, continued to maintain a personal, confidential relationship with Johnson. On March 26, 1968, Fortas participated in a meeting at the White House of the nation's highest military and diplomatic leaders that was of crucial importance to the future of the war, and to Johnson's political future. 
His participation in such conferences was kept secret at the time, but Fortas later conceded that there were, quote, stages in the fantastically difficult decisions about the war in Vietnam, where I participated in meetings, end quote. He admitted also to having played a role in the decision Johnson made in the summer of 1967 to send troops to quell racial rioting in Detroit. After having known Johnson for, quote, many years, many, many years, end quote, Fortas explained the president, quote, did me the honor of having some trust in my discretion, some belief in my patriotism, and some respect for my ability to analyze a problem, end quote. Another at the Supreme Court who observed with interest the unfolding political campaigns was Chief Justice Earl Warren. Warren and Fortas had become close friends as brothers on the court. The Chief Justice saw the president rather often, but his relationship with Johnson was totally unlike the personal friendship of Fortas and Johnson. The Chief Justice and the president frequently were drawn together by official occasions. Warren had been present, for example, when Johnson, in February, had addressed the Washington chapter of the National Conference of Christians and Jews. The following month, in the East Room of the White House, Warren administered the oath of office when Clark Clifford became Johnson's new Secretary of Defense. In April, at a White House dinner for the Shah of Iran, the President had been unusually gracious in addressing his toast to, quote, Your Imperial Majesty, our beloved Chief Justice, distinguished guest, end quote. But on these and all other occasions, Warren very carefully kept Johnson at arm's length, not apparently because of a personal dislike of the president, but because of his strong belief in the independence of the court. Still, Warren knew the president well enough to know the man's mind. After the crucial meeting attended by Fortas on Tuesday, March 26th, the tenor and pace of activity at the White House quickened. Political and military decisions facing Johnson could not be further delayed. Johnson requested time on the national television networks for 9 o'clock in the evening of Sunday, March 31st, for a major policy statement on Vietnam. McCarthy, learning of the president's request, demanded equal time. Nixon, who had scheduled a Vietnam statement of his own for release on Saturday, changed his plans to see first what Johnson was going to say. On Sunday night, Johnson spoke to the nation from his office in the White House. He made a lengthy defense of his Vietnam policy and renewed his offer to stop the bombardment of North Vietnam if the communists would begin peace talks. He also outlined steps he was taking to limit the war, quote, in the hope that this action will lead to early talks, end quote. And then, in conclusion, Johnson said, quote, Throughout my entire public career, I have followed the personal philosophy that I am a free man, and American, a public servant, and a member of my party. In that order, always and only, for 37 years in the service of our nation, first as a congressman, as a senator, and as vice president, and now as your president, I have put the unity of the people first. I have put it ahead of any divisive partisanship. And in these times, as in times before, it is true that a house divided against itself by the spirit of faction, of party, of region, of religion, of race, is a house that cannot stand. There is division in the American house now. There is divisiveness among us all tonight. 
and holding the trust that is mine as president of all the people, I cannot disregard the peril to the progress of the American people and the hope and the prospects of peace for all peoples. So I would ask all Americans, whatever their personal interests are concerned, to guard against divisiveness and all of its ugly consequences. What we won when all of our people united just must not now be lost in suspicion and distrust and selfishness and politics among any of our people. And believing this, as I do, I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. With America's sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. End quote. Johnson was a beleaguered president, but he also was an obstinate and vain man, and therefore his withdrawal was a stunning surprise. He was exhausted and apparently believed he could not win re-election, but if he unselfishly hoped his withdrawal would heal the nation's divisions, that hope was not fulfilled. In the primary election battles that continued, Robert Kennedy in May won the Democratic primaries in Indiana and Nebraska, and Gene McCarthy won in Oregon. Then the candidates began campaigning for the primary in California. Richard Nixon was running unopposed in some of the primaries, and initially was worrying more about the independent conservative third-party candidate of George Wallace of Alabama than about late-arriving opponents for the Republican nomination. But Nixon's appeal to white conservatives appeared to be proving so successful that he was challenged from his right by Governor Ronald Reagan of California, who made plans to seek the Republican nomination at the convention in Miami Beach. Nixon, at his campaign headquarters in New York in May, released a long position paper addressed to those whom time and again he had called, quote, the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators, end quote. The paper, titled, toward freedom from fear, was skillfully drawn to respond to the demand for law and order without taking a position on race relations or the war. In it, Nixon talked of crime in the cities which, he said, are, quote, neither safe nor secure for innocent men and women, end quote. He blamed the Supreme Court's decisions for, quote, seriously hamstringing the peace forces in our society and strengthening the criminal forces, end quote. He blamed Attorney General Ramsey Clark, for being an, quote-unquote, unwitting handmaiden of crime and of the court. 
Nixon thus drew the Supreme Court squarely into the political campaign, and he repeated these themes through his race for the presidency. Then, on June 5th, came the big California primary. In the Democratic vote tally, Robert Kennedy defeated Gene McCarthy, and that evening, at a victory celebration at the Hotel Ambassador in Los Angeles, Kennedy, 42 years old, was assassinated. Among all those who might have become president, he was the candidate who could have best united the young, black, browns, and other minorities in a common political front that might have pressed civil rights forward at the ballot box rather than in the streets. But now both Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. were dead. The assassination of Robert Kennedy, less than five years after the slaying of his brother, was yet another national disgrace that raised one notch more the level of confrontation between violence and reaction. Politically, the death of Senator Kennedy was a disaster for many liberals, who saw the war as only one of several major campaign issues and therefore were not prepared to support McCarthy. It threw the Democratic presidential race into chaos, so much so that there were indications Johnson was seriously considering changing his mind and running again. It was an unexpected advantage for the Republicans and their frontrunner, Richard Nixon, and it lent new urgency to Nixon's law and order campaign. The assassination of Robert Kennedy and its political ramifications were particularly poignant for Earl Warren. Warren had served at Johnson's request as chairman of the official commission that had investigated the assassination of President Kennedy. Presidents Kennedy and Johnson had upheld the Warren court in their appointments to it and in their enforcement of its school desegregation doctrines. Warren also had sensed the rising tide of reaction against the court. The year before, he had read the roll-call vote in the Senate on the nomination of Thurgood Marshall. He had also made a speech in which he declared, quote, This is no time for cavil or recrimination, end quote. Crime and violence, he suggested in the speech, were not caused by the people's exercise of their civil liberties, but by, quote, deep-seated, cancerous conditions, end quote, in our society. Footnote Speech was delivered before the National Conference on Crime Control, Washington, March 29, 1967. End footnote. Now, more than ever before, the court was becoming a political issue because Nixon was attacking it, rather than the cancerous conditions in the black ghettos and elsewhere. Now, more than ever before, the court was becoming a political issue because Nixon was attacking it, rather than the cancerous conditions in the black ghettos and elsewhere. At that moment, however, the Warren court was secure. Hugo Lafayette Black, 82, was having some trouble with his eyes and in his judicial outlook was wavering a bit on some issues, including criminal rights matters. But, by and large, Black had remained a liberal, good and true. William Orville Douglas, 69, never wavered in his liberalism. Black and Douglas were the only Roosevelt appointees remaining on the court. William J. Brennan Jr., an Eisenhower appointee, was a certain fourth member of their liberal bloc. Johnson's two appointees, Abe Fortas and Thurgood Marshall, were the fifth and sixth members. Potter Stewart, Eisenhower's appointee, was a conservative on some issues, but he consistently voted with Warren on important racial discrimination issues. Indeed, Stewart had just written the majority opinion holding that under the 1866 Civil Rights Act, a black man can sue to buy a home in the white suburbs. Byron R. White, John Kennedy's remaining appointee on the court, had turned out to be surprisingly conservative on many issues, although not on all. Finally, in order of philosophic adherence to libertarianism, there was a new John Marshall Harlan, grandson of the great Mr. Justice Harlan, whose descent to the separate but equal doctrine in 1896 
had been made law of the land by the Warren Court in 1954. The first and the second John Marshall Harlan took their middle name from the great Chief Justice John Marshall. Paradoxically, the new Justice Harlan did not espouse the doctrine of federal supremacy, as had John Marshall or the first John Marshall Harlan. Justice Harlan, appointed to the court by Eisenhower in 1955, was the court's most conservative member and the most consistent opponent of Warren's liberal activism. But he also was an intellectually honest man who respected judicial precedent. So the Warren court stood as strong as, if not stronger than, at any time since Chief Justice Warren had arrived in 1953, and with political controversy swirling furiously outside it. A little more than a week before Johnson had announced his withdrawal from the presidential race, Warren had celebrated his 77th birthday with his family. He remained in good health and looked fine, despite the aloofness he intentionally maintained from the president, politicians generally, and the press. He still wore the warm, broad smile that had stood him in great stead when he had been a practicing politician himself. As spring passed, the court handed down, as usual, the most important decisions of the term. June arrived, and the end of the term was approaching once more. And as the days came and went, after Robert Kennedy's assassination, it became clear that Johnson was not going to change his mind and run again. If Warren retired now, allowing Johnson, while still in office, to name the next Chief Justice, anyone who knew the President's mind could know what Johnson would do. His habits of installing old friends in high offices now was so firmly established that Washington was full of Johnson cronies. In addition to Abe Fortas and Ramsey Clark, Johnson's personal friends held office at such diverse places as the United States Information Agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, and the U.S. embassies in Australia and Sweden. Johnson had named his old friend Homer Thornberry to a federal judgeship in Texas, and Thornberry the year before had been rumored to be the president's choice to fill the Clark vacancy on the court. Just recently, Johnson's friend Clark Clifford had become Secretary of Defense. If he retired now, Warren could not be sure which friend Johnson would nominate as the next Chief Justice. Conceivably, he might name Thornberry. Arthur Goldberg still enjoyed a rather surprisingly large following, particularly in the Eastern Liberal Press which felt that Johnson had an obligation to return Goldberg to the court. But Goldberg was no crony of Johnson's, and the president almost certainly would not pick him to be chief justice. Within a month after Johnson had announced his withdrawal, Goldberg had resigned from the U.S. representative to the United Nations and disappeared from the government service into a private law firm in New York. Among all the names Johnson might consider to succeed Warren, one was as sure a guess as anyone could possibly make. Abe Fortas the president's oldest and most trusted friend. But it really did not make that much difference which of the names Johnson would settle on. The next chief justice, whomever Johnson selected, would be a liberal. He would sit for years to come and, no matter what political party occupied the White House, he would cast a libertarian vote, certainly in civil rights cases, and the court would remain secure. This much of Johnson's response could be predicted with certainty. Warren's health was good now, but at his old age, he could not be certain it would remain so. If he did not retire now, he might be forced to leave the court later, and later Richard Nixon might be in the White House. With Nixon's campaigning now against the Warren Court, there was no question at all of what he would try to do to the Warren Court if he won the White House and the chance to name Earl Warren's successor. On June 13, 1968, eight days before the assassination of Robert Kennedy, after drawing up the appropriate papers in consultation with the White House, Warren notified Johnson that he would retire. The court closed its term on June 17th, and the White House on June 26th 
announced the Chief Justice's intention to retire. Conservative Republicans, alarmed at what was afoot, raised loud objections without waiting to find out whom Johnson would nominate to succeed Warren. Governor Reagan told a press conference that Chief Justice Warren displayed a, quote, lack of faith in this system of ours, end quote, by retiring so that President Johnson could choose a successor before leaving the White House. Warren had no right, quote, to choose which president he thinks should dominate for the next 20 years the Supreme Court, end quote, Reagan claimed. There was, however, historic precedent for Warren's action. Admittedly, the precedent was somewhat remote in time. It was provided by Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth, who resigned from the court in the year 1800. But it also came at a time in American history when the future of the court and the nation were deeply entwined in political controversy. The controversy then, as later, was between those who advocated states' rights and others who argued for federal supremacy. It divided patriots, including Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, Marshall, Ellsworth, and the several Adams, who not many years before had been together in the Revolution and the establishment of the nation. President Washington, a strong Federalist, named Ellsworth Chief Justice in 1796. Ellsworth, a Connecticut Yankee, believed as Washington did in nationalism and federalism. When Washington declined a third term, John Adams ran against Thomas Jefferson, and Adams, in 1797, became the second president. Adams, from Massachusetts, also belonged to the Federalist Party. Jefferson, from Virginia, believed strongly in the rights of states, and was opposed to a strong central government. Four years later, Jefferson, as the candidate of the new Republican Party, defeated Adams and ended 12 years of Federalist administration. But Jefferson did not take office until March 4, 1801. Chief Justice Ellsworth, citing poor health, although only 55 years of age, on December 15, 1800, gave President Adams his resignation. The lame duck president quickly nominated John Marshall, a Federalist. The Senate confirmed Marshall, and he became Chief Justice on February 4, 1801, one month before Jefferson was inaugurated as president. There can be no doubt that Ellsworth resigned in order to allow Adams to name the new Chief Justice, and to avoid the possibility that Jefferson would have that privilege. Ellsworth apparently did not know specifically that Adams would name Marshall, but Adams' choice was a logical one from the Federalist view. Jefferson and Marshall had been at odds for some years. When Adams nominated Marshall, Jefferson called the appointment, quote, an outrage on decency, end quote, and argued unsuccessfully that such appointments to the federal judiciary were void unless made with the consent of the president-elect. A Republican newspaper accused Adams of naming Marshall, quote, because President Jefferson will not be able to turn him out of office, end quote. Marshall, in turn, penned a letter to a friend in which he called Jefferson an, quote, absolute terrorist, end quote. After Jefferson became president, he did turn many Federalists out of office. Marshall, of course, remained Chief Justice for 34 years and was historically successful in maintaining and strengthening the doctrine of federal supremacy. Unfortunately, the happy precedent offered by Oliver Ellsworth and John Adams for Chief Justice Warren and President Johnson did not yield similar results. On June 26, 1968, when Johnson at a White House press conference disclosed Warren's intention to retire, the president simultaneously announced that he had selected Abe Fortas to be the next Chief Justice. True to form, Johnson also announced that, to fill the associate justiceship vacancy that would result, he was nominating Homer Thornberry. Thornberry was a former mayor of Austin, Johnson's base of operations in Texas, and for 14 years had occupied the House seat that once belonged to Lyndon Johnson. After becoming president, Johnson had named Thornberry a federal district court judge 
and then had elevated him to the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Earl Warren's knowledge of Lyndon Johnson was thus confirmed. Quote, an entirely splendid appointment, end quote, the Chief Justice said at the usual press conference he held on July 5th in the East Conference Room at the Supreme Court. Quote, I feel Justice Fortas will be a great Chief Justice. I don't know Judge Thornberry as well as I do Justice Fortas, but I believe he will be an excellent justice, end quote. The Chief Justice and the President, in concert, did the best they could to assure that the Warren Court's philosophic and judicial activism would be preserved through Johnson's selection of Warren's successor. Warren's retirement letter to Johnson did not fix a retirement date. They provided that Warren would leave when his successor was confirmed. The Chief Justice wrote, quote, I hereby advise you of my intention to retire as Chief Justice of the United States, effective at your pleasure, end quote. Warren, in another letter, explained that he was not leaving, quote, because of reasons of health or on account of any personal or associational problems, end quote, but because every man, quote, eventually must bow, end quote, to age. The President's letter, which completed the transaction with Warren, said, quote, in deference to your wishes, I will seek a replacement and fill the vacancy in the office of Chief Justice that will be occasioned when you depart. With your agreement, I will accept your decision to retire at such time as a successor is qualified, end quote. Little wonder, then, that, when the Senate Judiciary Committee convened July 11th to open hearings on the nominations, there was much disputation over whether Warren, in fact, had retired, and there was indeed a vacancy for Johnson to fill. Republicans and Southern Democrats on the committee pressed the question, and Ramsey Clark, the Attorney General, was the chief spokesman for Johnson and Fortas, insisting that, quote, from the earliest years of the Union, presidents have nominated and the Senate has confirmed persons to high office when no vacancy existed at the time, end quote. But the disputation obviously was a game. All knew that, when the Senate confirmed Fortas, Warren would leave. The real question that intrigued the conservative senators was, would Warren leave if Fortas was not confirmed? At this stage, however, the conservative opposition was not well organized, and the general assumption in Washington was that the Senate would confirm Johnson's nominations. For one thing, the opposition leadership was assumed by Robert P. Griffin, a 44-year-old Republican lawyer from Michigan who had been in the Senate only two years, rather than by a member of the Republican leadership in the Senate. In fact, the Senate Republican leader, Everett McKinley Dirksen, supported the Fortas and Thornberry nominations. Richard Nixon, who had been campaigning in Griffin's home state in Michigan, delivered a carefully worded statement saying, quote, We need a court which looks upon its function as an interpretation rather than breaking through into new areas, end quote, but not mentioning Warren or Fortas by name. Griffin, who was accusing Johnson of, quote-unquote, cronyism, was himself accused of trying to save the nomination for Nixon. Still, the initial consensus in Washington was that Johnson certainly would win. The president's party controlled Congress, and the Senate previously had confirmed Fortas to be an associate justice and Thornberry to be a circuit court judge. Moreover, Johnson had paved the way for his nominees by talking privately with the leaders of the Senate, including his old friend Dirksen. Further, the Senate only once in the century had failed to confirm a Supreme Court nominee. That single instance had occurred back in 1930, when President Hoover nominated John J. Parker to the court. Fortas's first and foremost mistake was to appear in person before the Judiciary Committee. No nominee to the position of Chief Justice before in history had appeared in person before the Senate. When nominated, each of the 14 men who served as Chief Justice through Earl Warren had allowed his record to speak for him, and the Senate had not demeaned the office by insisting that the nominees submit to interrogation. 
The committee asked Fortas to appear. He could have refused, but he came, saying, quote, I am very happy to be here, end quote. Quite apparently, he did so in the belief that his personal appearance would hasten his confirmation. Senator Griffin doggedly had raised questions about the relationship between Johnson and Fortas since Fortas had gone on the court in 1965 and succeeded in suggesting that their relationship somehow compromised the independence of the court. Griffin's questions also succeeded in publicizing the quote-unquote cronyism issue. Fortas felt he could respond satisfactorily to the senator's questions. He was mistaken. By breaking with precedent, Fortas committed the tactical error of exposing himself to increasingly hostile interrogation. The questions probably would have gone unanswered had he not appeared. He committed the strategic error of exposing himself to questioning about his Supreme Court opinions. If the court is to maintain its independence, no justice can allow himself to be questioned by members of Congress about his written opinions. Fortas tried to resist, but his resistance was unsatisfactory. Justice's opinions, standing alone, of course, may be discussed by members of Congress or anyone else, but the law itself is questioned when a justice exposes himself to hostile congressional interrogation and is drawn into a combative defense of his opinions. Such questioning by Congress of a justice's official opinions has the inevitable appearance of, and often the purpose of, influencing the future decisions of the court. When the court's decisions even appear to have been influenced by Congress or the President, the constitutional separation of powers doctrine is violated, the independence of the court is compromised, and the integrity of the court is damaged. Fortas, accompanied as he had been in 1965 by liberal Senator Gore of Tennessee, sat before the Judiciary Committee for four long days as some of the most conservative members of the United States Senate alternately grilled him. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina read for nearly two hours from selected documents that were critical of the Warren Court. Sam Irvin of North Carolina held the floor for longer to inform Fortas and the nation why he believed the court had erred in deciding that the poll tax was unconstitutional, that the 1866 Civil Rights Act had real meaning, and so forth. James Eastland of Mississippi pressed on Fortas his views of the meanings of the Constitution. Roman Herska of Nebraska questioned Fortas concerning a labor case the court had decided, which led the senator to the assumption that, inasmuch as Fortas played the violin, quote, you have a card, end quote, in the musicians' union. Quote, I do not, end quote, Fortas replied. John McClellan of Arkansas was less vicious and more blunt. McClellan reserved the right to disagree, quote, wholly and completely with some of the philosophy you have expounded, end quote. Fortas tried not to respond when he was asked about decisions of the court, but he was less than successful. Senator Eastland asked, for example, quote, to what extent and under what circumstances do you believe that the court should attempt to bring about social, economic, or political changes? End quote. Fortas, drawn into response, gave a curious answer, quote, zero, absolutely zero, end quote. But the senators returned again and again to the quote-unquote cronyism charge and to questions concerning Justice Fortas's relationship with President Johnson, and Fortas supplied his interrogators with the answers they so eagerly sought. He responded with an earnestness that at times was emotional, as if compelled by sincere conviction that no man in the service of President Johnson could do wrong. He seemed almost oblivious to the fact that the more answers he gave, the more partisan his nomination became. Senator Griffin, never pausing in his pursuit of Fortas, declared, quote, Never before has there been such obvious political maneuvering to create a vacancy so that a lame duck president can fill it, and thereby deny the opportunity to a new president about to be elected by the people. 
and never before in history has any president been so bold as to subject himself to the charge of cronyism with respect to two such nominations at the same time. End quote. The senators drew from Fortas admissions that he had been at the White House when the president decided to send federal troops to quell the race riot in Detroit in 1966, and that, in 1967, he had telephoned to complain to a former business associate about the businessman's criticism of Johnson's Vietnam War budget. Fortas's testimony left the impression that his old relationship with Johnson had not changed much at all in the years that he had been an associate justice. Fortas was not entirely convincing when he insisted time and again that his continuing association with the president had no effect on his decisions and other judicial work of the court. The committee still had not finished when Congress recessed for the Republican and Democratic National Conventions in August. On the eighth day of August in Miami Beach, Florida, Richard Nixon won the Republican nomination on the first ballot, and in an acceptance speech addressed to the American majority that was neither young nor black, he spoke of violence and crime and fear. Quote, Let us always respect, as I do, our courts and those who serve on them, but let us also recognize that some of our courts and their decisions have gone too far in weakening the peace forces as against the criminal forces in this country. And we must act to restore that balance, end quote. Also in his acceptance speech, Nixon went further than he had before in attacking Ramsey Clark as a symbol of libertarian permissiveness that allegedly caused crime and violence. Quote, and if we are to restore order and respect for law in this country, there's one place we're going to begin. We're going to have a new Attorney General of the United States of America. I pledge to you that our new Attorney General will be directed by the President of the United States to launch a war against organized crime in this country. I pledge to you that the new Attorney General of the United States will be an active belligerent against the loan sharks and the numbers racketeers that rob the urban poor in our cities. I pledge to you that the new Attorney General will open a new front against the filth peddlers and the narcotics peddlers who are corrupting the lives of the children of this country. Because, my friends, let this message come through clear from what I say tonight. Time is running out for the merchants of crime and corruption in American society. The wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in the United States of America. We shall reestablish freedom from fear in America so that America can take the lead in reestablishing freedom from fear in the world. And to those who say that law and order is the code word for racism, there and here is a reply. Our goal is justice, justice for every American. End quote. Nixon told the cheering Republicans in Miami Beach. Two weeks later, the divided and disorganized Democrats met in convention at Chicago. Amidst violent street demonstrations met by an ugly counterforce of police and soldiers, the party faithful on the first ballot nominated Hubert Humphrey over Eugene McCarthy as the Democratic presidential candidate. In his acceptance speech, Humphrey made no real effort to defend the courts or Ramsey Clark. He said to Democrats on his left that violence will not be quelled by attacks on, quote, our courts, our laws, or our attorney general, end quote. 
But he also declared to those on his right, quote, rioting, burning, sniping, mugging, trafficking in narcotics, and disregard for law are the advance guard of anarchy, and they must and they will be stopped, end quote. On September 13th, the Judiciary Committee resumed its hearings on the Fortas and Thornberry nominations, and the Republicans further strengthened their cause against Fortas. Fortas declined to reappear before the committee. So the committee, without Fortas's participation, called as a witness B.J. Tenery, dean of the American University Law School in Washington, who testified that Fortas had been paid $15,000 to conduct a series of seminars at the school during the summer of 1968. Dean Tenery said that the money came from a fund of $30,000, which was raised by Paul Porter through contributions from five men, Gustav L. Levy, John Loeb, and Paul D. Smith, all of New York, Troy Post of Dallas, and Maurice Lazarus of New York. Each was a wealthy businessman or lawyer. Some were friends or clients of Fortas before he went to the Supreme Court. Paul Porter, of course, was one of Abe Fortas's former law partners at the old firm of Arnold Porter and Fortas. Tenery's testimony apparently was intended by Fortas's enemies in the Senate to be further evidence of the justice's alleged insensitivity to the independence of the court and its members. The conservatives on the Judiciary Committee also discussed at length, and without the benefit of Fortas's presence, the Warren Court's decisions concerning the First Amendment rights of book publishers and movie makers, and left or attempted to leave the distinct impression that the Supreme Court and Justice Fortas were responsible also for glutting America with pornography. The committee on September 17th voted 11-6 to 6 to recommend confirmation of the nomination of Fortas to be Chief Justice. Eight Democrats and three Republicans voted for confirmation. The three included Senator Dirksen. Three Democrats and three Republicans voted no. The nomination moved to the Senate floor, and on September 25th, a conservative coalition of Republicans and Southern Democrats began a filibuster, the first in the Senate's history to prevent a vote on the confirmation of a nominee to the Supreme Court. All the criticisms of Fortas heard in the committee were voiced again on the floor, but the political objection to the nomination was predominant. Hiram Fong, Republican of Hawaii, said, quote, Particularly at this juncture in the history of our nation, this crucially important appointment should be left to the new president soon to be elected by the people, end quote. Howard H. Baker Jr., Republican of Tennessee, added, quote, The Supreme Court has fallen to a low estate and it must be reconstructed, end quote. Southern Democrats helped the Republicans along. Senator Irvin declared, quote, the tragic truth is that in recent years the Supreme Court has repeatedly usurped and exercised the power of the Congress and the states. End quote. At one o'clock in the afternoon of October 1st, a roll call vote began on a motion to stop the filibuster and take up consideration of Johnson's nomination of Fortas. To pass, the motion to invoke cloture needed 59 votes, or two thirds of the senators present and voting. The tally showed 45 votes in favor of halting the filibuster far short of the 59 required. The Republicans and Southern Democrats had won, not on the merits, but on the question of their right to filibuster indefinitely. Ten Republicans and 35 Democrats had voted for cloture, but the balance of power was held by the 43 votes, 24 of them Republicans, and 19 Democrats, cast against cloture. The following day, Johnson, at Fortas's request, withdrew the nomination. Quote, I hope, Fortas said in his letter to the President, that my withdrawal will help put in motion a process by which there will be an end to destructive and extreme assaults upon the court. End quote. 
Johnson, in reply, declared that the Senate action was, quote-unquote, tragic. For Johnson, it was doubly tragic. With no promotion of Fortas, Warren would stay, and with Warren staying, there was no vacancy for Thornberry to fill. And thus was joined the battle for control of the Supreme Court of the United States. In the joining, the well-laid plans of Warren, Johnson, and Fortas were destroyed, laid waste by Johnson's peculiar view of presidential power, applied without limit to the manipulation of men for the rewarding of personal friends with public offices. True, the conservative opposition to the Warren court was rising, Johnson was a lame-duck president without popular strength, and the Republicans were determined to save the chief justiceship for Richard Nixon. Still, Johnson was president, and his party controlled Congress. Johnson almost certainly could have won confirmation of a new chief justice, who would have preserved the essential concern for human justice and equality, the independence and the integrity of Earl Warren. Had Johnson only nominated the right man, Johnson probably could have won confirmation even of Abe Fortas to be the next chief justice. If the Republicans and Southern Democrats in the Senate had been confident of their case against Fortas, they would not have had to resort to filibuster. Fortas committed an indiscretion by accepting the $15,000, but he was proved guilty of nothing worse. Fortas's continuing relationship with the president after he became an associate justice was offensive to the independence of the court, but probably was no worse than similar relationships in history of certain other justices with their presidents. More to the point, Johnson in six months would have left the presidency, but the nomination of Fortas could not carry the weight of a second Johnson crony. All presidents need friends, but the Fortas nomination, thus weighed down, broke under the charge of cronyism. Johnson gave the Warren Court's enemies the leverage they needed, and in the final analysis he offended the dignity of the Supreme Court. It was said by some liberals, after the Fortas debacle, that Johnson should have nominated another liberal to succeed Earl Warren. There were discussions at the Justice Department and the White House that centered on the idea of nominating Senator Hart of Michigan as the next Chief Justice. Johnson was willing, but not enthusiastic. Ramsey Clark, true to the end in his miscast role, argued against the idea on the ground that the nomination would further politicize the Supreme Court. Clark prevailed for the moment. End of Chapter 6 End of Part 1 of God Save This Honorable Court The Supreme Court Crisis by Louis M. Kohlmeyer Jr. Read by Mike Overby of Amicus Lectio, a podcast where I read you open access and public domain legal scholarship. If you'd like your scholarship read on that podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Amicus Lectio or at Lethargilistic. Thanks and bye-bye. Mr. Nixon, uh, the Senate now has blocked the nomination of Abe Fortas as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Who do you plan to uh, nominate if you're elected? <laughs> now, without even knowing, uh, and I did know before as I read the panel earlier, I know that was a newspaper man. <laughs> it's a very good question. Well, Mr. Murphy, uh, as I'm sure you will recognize, that when I get questions as to who I will appoint to the cabinet, and, uh, and many people already appointed my cabinet. I really don't have to do it, you know. But uh, I just, just too many have been appointed. That's all I have to select out of you. And as to who I appoint to the Supreme Court, uh, I really, it would be very presumptuous for me to say that until uh, I first uh, win the election, which I hope to do. But I will indicate the kind of man I want. That I think is fair, and I think you will agree that under those ground rules, if you don't mind, I'd just rather leave it at that, and then you can get an indication of who it might be. My view about what a judge in the Supreme Court should be does not relate to whether he's a liberal or a conservative. 
many people confuse what judges really have as a role. What I'm concerned about when I look at a judge is also not whether he's a Democrat or a Republican. The question is, what kind of a lawyer is he first? And second, what is his attitude toward the Constitution? Now, if I find a man, whether he's a Democrat or Republican, or known as a liberal or a conservative, who recognizes that it is the role of the court to interpret the law rather and to leave to the Congress that of writing the law, that's the kind of a man that I want. I do not want the court. I think, I think some of our judges, and I, I, I respect these men as men, but some of our judges uh, have gone too far uh, in, in assuming unto themselves a mandate which is not theirs, and that is uh, to, to put their social or economic ideas into their decisions. The Congress is elected, the House and the Senate to write the laws of this land. The court is not elected or selected for that purpose, and the court should, should interpret it. In other words, I want men who will interpret the Constitution strictly uh, and fairly and objectively, and that's the kind of a man I intend to appoint. Is there any? Yeah, go ahead. Is there anybody on the court at the moment who would make an acceptable Chief Justice? Yes, uh, yes, I, uh, I haven't. <laughs> that leaves me plenty of running room. I'll say yes. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Basically, the, the, the decisions that I have quarreled with, uh, and many lawyers have quarreled with them, have been five to four decisions. And, and as I look at some of the four, uh, and per, there are three of those left that are in that minority, some of those are strict constructionists and therefore would fit my idea as to uh, who might be a judge of the Supreme Court and maybe a Chief Justice. Uh, but uh, don't, don't let them know that in Washington. I don't want them writing any letters. <laughs>